Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. The Jell-O Program, coming to you from Waukegan, Illinois, starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, and yours truly, Don Wilson. The orchestra opens a program with Man About Town from the picture of the same name. And now, ladies and gentlemen, greetings from Waukegan. Our last broadcast of the season is coming to you from the stage of the Genesee Theater in Waukegan, Illinois. Yes, sir. Hello again, folks. Please, Jack, wait till I introduce you. Oh, pardon me, I'm nervous. On a certain Valentine's Day many years ago, a stork flew over this fair city and dropped a little bundle of joy. <laughs> and who do you think this bundle was? Uh, Jello again. This Jack, ja- will you please wait a minute? Don, who was born here, you or me? <laughs> For heaven's sake. So without further ado, I bring you that local boy who surprised everybody by making good, Jack Benny. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hello again. This is Bundle Benny talking. And it's about time. Gosh, Don, I've been so thrilled and excited the last few Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. Tonight, the Ballyhoo comes to you from the little town of Waukegan, Illinois, in the grand year of 1939, where we have just watched the local boy who made good come home. All Waukegan is agog at the spectacle of a Hollywood premiere for Mark Sandwich's Man About Town, starring their hometown hero, Jack Benny. So take yourselves back to the Genesee Theater where the 50,000 people in Waukegan have just watched Jack do his radio broadcast as we at the review set up the projector. Okay, the lights go out and the picture commences in mere seconds. See the show and stay behind for a discussion that will delight the earbuds. My, my. Is that the same one or did you get a refill? Same one, Rochester. But if you must know, I had lunch with a strange, beautiful lady. 
You did? Congratulations. Who was she? Said her name was Lady Arlington. Lady Arlington. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, who'd you say you were? Prince Charming, smarty. Did you get a phone number? Roger, sir, you never ask a title lady for her phone number. We just had lunch. Man, that's like reading one page and throwing away the book. And Ted, that part where you looked soulfully up at Diana. Gee, that was sure realistic. Speaking of soulful looks, who was that lady you had lunch with today? Oh, that really was a lady, and I'm glad you recognized it. She's Lady Arlington of the English aristocracy. She's a member of the aristocracy, I'm Napoleon. Well, stick your hand in your vest, because she is. Anyway, she was attractive. Didn't you think so, Diana? I really didn't get a very good look at her. Oh, you didn't? I thought you were counting her eyelashes. Where do you get that Lady Arlington stuff? You couldn't get near the English aristocracy. Oh, I couldn't, eh? Well, it might interest you to know that right now my tailor is making me a coat of arms. And with two pair of pants. Oh, Rochester. Uh, Rochester, I'm expecting a phone call from Lady Arlington. Uh, yes, sir. I'll let you know directly she calls. Listen, Rochester. I want you to go back to the hotel, call me up, and say you're Lady Arlington. Lady Arlington? Shall I put a dress on? No, don't bother. I'll use my imagination. Now hurry up. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. In 1939, the motion picture industry was flooded with many films that have gone into the books as outright classics. It seemed that Hollywood could do no wrong, and it was within this grand year that one Jack Benny would be able to add his name to the list of legends that had a film out during this grand, illustrious year. So why is it not talked about? Well... When you have The Wizard of Oz and The Hound of the Baskervilles to compete with amongst many others, a small 82-minute comedy may indeed fall through the cracks. Nevertheless, as you have just seen, there lies a delightful romp with Jack, Eddie Anderson, Phil Harris, Dorothy L'Amour, Monty Woolley, Edward Arnold, and even Betty Grable. More than enough to talk about, and even today, we can still talk about it, but we can't do it alone. So here with us is a grand woman who has, since the 70s has run the International Jack Benny Fan Club, wrote the illustrious newsletter, the Jack Barry, Benny Times, and has curated Jack's legacy with a multitude of projects, including the release of the Lost Programs on a Shout Factory release and the use of Jack in modern film clips via uh, the estate of Jack Benny. She is also the classical musical enthusiast that anybody would want to know, and she is a noted rabbit raconteur. Please welcome Laura Leibowitz. <laughs> Thanks so much. Lovely to be here. Laura, this is this is this is a this is a dream. The moment that I started this show, I said to myself, we're going to talk about Jack Benny. It's not even a question. <laughs> but then the question beca- then the other question came up. Well, what do we uh, how do, who do we get on uh, to talk about Jack's films because there are surprisingly a lot more than people might imagine when they think about him as just a radio and TV star. Yeah. Uh, but you were definitely on the top of the list as one of the people that needed to come on and talk about Jack because you have literally lived Jack uh, for, for, for a long time. And um, 39 years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 39. Yes. Always 39. It, it, I, I will tell you though, it, this is a little history um, for, for listeners of the show uh, who, who care if they haven't skipped to the, the film discussion yet. Um, Laura and I have, this is the first time we've spoken to each other in person period. Um, but I have known Laura since I was 10 years old, That's uh, okay. because, 
because Laura started the International Jack Benny fan club and eventually it made it to the internet. <laughs> and and I and I joined the fan club yeah. um, and I have communicated with Laura and other members of the fan club all throughout the years. Um, and uh, it, it, so the the connection to Jack Benny has been there since I was 10 years old. So if you're wondering where all the annoyance has come from, it starts from here and it's kind of Laura's fault. Um, so. <laughs> Must be something at 10 because I started the fan club when I was 10. So I guess we just come of Jack Benny age when when we get to 10 years old. I don't know why that is, but. That's when that's when Jack's ghost comes to visit you in the middle of the night and just <laughs> yeah just goes listen kid <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's like it, uh, Jack Benny puberty as it were you know sits, it sets in at uh, ten years old and and suddenly yeah. it's like it's a whole new world to you so <laughs> yeah and guys if you don't go through Jack Benny puberty you're a you're a damaged person um but <laughs> yeah uh, you're missing yeah, um, yeah but I'll tell you like I I, I uh, I want to ask your history of Jack. Um, obviously, you just mentioned that it started at 10, but so Jack had already died at this point prior to you starting the film club. So where does the where does the origin point begin and where does it really take you? Well, the origin point. Well, I, I'll, I'll give the nod to my mom because she loved telling this story, especially to reporters from the AP who showed up to the house and uh now that she's no longer around to tell it, then I have to keep telling it. So apparently, um, and I'm pretty sure it was Jack's second farewell special, that she she loved Jack Benny and you know went back to the radio days. And, and so she decides to introduce me to Jack at that time, and she sets me down in front of the television. I'm like four. And says, you know, watch this. He's a, he's a very funny comedian. And apparently, after about 30 seconds of looking at the television, I got bored and got up and ran out of the room. <laughs> she said, well, no Jack Benny fan here, all right. And, uh, and yeah, so then, then you know, what, what are you interested in it for? Cartoons. Well, yeah. thank you, Mel, um, that they wanted to do the animated version of the radio show. And so they came up with the mouse, the Jack built. They only did one of them, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, But that one is just golden. And so watching the cartoon that has the, the characters of the Benny show portrayed as mice um, and actually has a live action shot of Jack at the end, you know, caught my attention. And, um, then, you know, watched some of the reruns of Jack on, I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the time, and we had gotten, we had just gotten cable TV, and, um, ooh, and there was a station out of Detroit that was showing this package of shows, you know, Bachelor Father, You Bet Your Life, Topper, and Jack Benny, mm-hmm. uh, among others. And so I got to see some of the the Benny shows at that time. In fact, I even remember watching out in the kitchen on this little, you know, tiny little Sony portable television set um, in black and white, which, of course, didn't matter since the shows were in black and white anyway. It's fine. I'm not missing anything. Um, And, uh, yeah, then I was talking on the phone with a friend in Carmel, California, who was also a Jack Benny fan. And I said to her, you know, I know so many people who like Jack Benny, I should start a Jack Benny fan club. 
And she said, well, it's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. And little did I know that one sentence uh, would change my life forever. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I was like, hey, I'm going to start a Jack Benny fan club. I remember the, <laughs> I don't tell this too often, my, our, our humble beginnings, that I actually remember taking one of my mom's manila folders and cutting it up and running it through my little manual typewriter to, you know, so-and-so is a member in good standing of the Jack Benny fan club. Aww. You know, yeah. And um, so, you know, making copies out of out of the Marsha Bory book of photos and sending them out and, and whatnot. And, you know, then it just, well, we'll be really honest about it. Um, that Mary passed away in, so that was, that was 1980. Mm-hmm. And in 1983, in, on June 30th, Mary passed away. Well, when the AP wrote her, her obit, they talked about her meeting Jack at, at the May Company. And it's like, ah! And we should, um, we should clarify for the audience who may not be aware, Mary is Mary Livingston or Mary Benny, um, who was a member of Jack's cast, but also... Mrs. Jack Benny for all those many years. Yep, um, exactly. It's since January 14th of 1927. Um, so, so anyhow, they wrote her a bit, and they had done, they had created this, this urban legend. Not intentionally to create an urban legend. They had just done skits on the show of how Jack met Mary, and... Mm-hmm you know, created this mythology of Jack meeting her at the hosiery counter and whatnot. Well, there, that was a, a green of truth in it, you know, in that, you know, Jack had tried to get Mary's attention when she was working the hosiery counter and I, I, he was trying to give her crap or something. And, and there are so many different versions of this story. Yeah. And he yells at her, where's the men's room? <laughs> And she says, "Ask the floor walker." <laughs> and um, so that's that's the one that I actually believe. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, they they printed the legend, and so being the aspiring little archivist that I was, you know, I sat down on my IBM executive typewriter, my mom's IBM executive typewriter, and wrote a long letter to the AP correcting them. And fortunately, I was going to a high school that had like. Chicago style manual for footnotes of how you did footnotes. And so I footnoted my own letter to the AP sent off to them, telling them how wrong, wrong, wrong they were. Um, but hopefully in a nice way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and my mom makes me up one morning and, uh, I've, I've never been an early riser. I've, I've been a night owl since the womb. So, you know, it's sometime in the morning when the sun's out like, hey, what? Me laying in bed. She's at the door to my room. It's like, uh, I just got a call. Uh-huh. The AP wants to come here and interview you. <laughs> You're joking, right? <laughs> no. Wow. Why? Is your mom wondering, like, what did she do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to be, be like a Soviet spy or something. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they they had gotten a letter. They were apparently, you know, obviously I wasn't on the call when she got it from the AP. But, uh, 
you know, that the, they were so impressed that I had footnoted <laughs> the letter. It's like, yeah, I suppose not a lot of footnotes have letters, or not a lot of letters have footnotes anymore. Um, so, anyhow, you know, and and then it was like, oh, crap. Uh, you know, I had like 10 members and I'd kind of lost interest in the club at that point. Um, but, you know, it's like, okay, well, how do we make this sound legit? And so the first AP article came out on me in, like, August, I think, of, of 83. And, you know, just trying to make it look good. But then, you know, Jay Hickerson, uh, one of the teachers at my high school, saw an article on Jay Hickerson, Friends of Old Time Radio. And Jay had said that he was a uh, Benny fan. So I reached out to him, and he mentioned me in, in uh, his newsletter, Hello Again. And it's like, oh, now I really got to get my act together. Um, and started, started, you know, trying to do the Jack Benny Times as a regular, regular going concern. And that was in 1984. And uh, 36 freaking years later, <laughs> I need to get an issue out this month. 30, 36 years, 36 years later, it has, it has come to Jack Benny's legacy having been cemented thanks to you and and your your gumption as a 10 year old to be like I'm gonna start a, a fan club um, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I correct the AP my mom's gonna think I'm a Soviet spy but then it'll all work out at the end you know? welcome like, to the story of my life yeah yeah no exactly it's full of danger and excitement the one thing that I I will tell you one of the things that inspires me in regards to your story and I, I, I had to, I, I kind of had been thinking about this the last couple of years, especially with the access that we have to old time radio nowadays. Um, something that people might want to know up front. Obviously, we're talking about a movie of Jack's, but Jack's radio career mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why we still talk about him today. That, along with his television work, but his radio work is legendary. And Jack's Jack's program was one of the few programs um, in existence that basically documented and recorded every episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the few. Fibber McGee and Molly is one of the most. Um, one of the other most um, archived shows of its era. But if you try to look for um, complete runs of other shows, you'll be sadly disappointed. Unfortunately, not everybody was as astute as Jack and um, people around him to say, like, let's save these recordings. Um, but so what you ended up doing in those early years, along with people like Jay, was you guys tape traded a lot. Oh, tape- my God. Yes. And tape trading for people who don't know is this is how you were able to swap episodes and collect episodes as you trade tapes or discs or ways that you archive the shows um yep reel to reel tape and there are tape trading lists that were available in like i believe it was like you know like newspapers and like magazines and whatnot where you would know where to send it like you'd you'd collect it you'd collect among this group of collectors so you ended up through this tape trading keeping the interest alive and keeping a lot of those recordings alive that ended up being scooped up by uh, eventually radio spirits and other companies that they're the reason we have a lot of them on physical media today um, and still do to a lot of, to a, to, to a large degree. Um, uh, one of the, one of the things that I, uh, the way I got into Jack, I have to delve into my own origin story on it in order to tell this part. Um, so I'm sorry if it gets boring for the listening audience, my introduction to Jack 
was accidental. Much like everything that happened to Jack, my introduction to Jack was accident. Um, my father, my grandfather introduced me to old time radio with the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes series um, because we he found a tape at our local Cracker Barrel and he gave it to me and he said, well, you do you like Sherlock Holmes? Because I was getting into Sherlock Holmes at the time. And he's like, you can listen to this. And I listened to it and I was like, what's this ad for cough drops? And and cooking sherry. What what? There's car- there's commercials on the radio the, on this radio audiobook thing, and then you know you get to learn about you know radio drama. Eventually, my interest led me to Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy via Fun and Fancy Free, and then I found out they had a radio show, and I was like a ventriloquist on the radio. That sounds interesting, and sure enough, it was hilarious. Um, but my dad, um got me two different sets one for christmas he got me the 60 greatest all-time radio shows the radio spirits one um i still unfortunately i don't have any of these collections anymore but the second one that he got me um after my begged and pleaded my head off at costco was comedy superstars and it had amongst them edgar bergen and charlie mccarthy so basically i wanted this 60 this 60 episode collection just for 10 episodes of edgar bergen and charlie mccarthy and I wanted my dad to listen to one with me. And he said, well, can we first listen to this one? And he picked out a recording from 1944. It was Jack Benny with his guest, Groucho Marx. And and, um, and this is during the war years. This collection had a lot of stuff from the war years and the early Lucky Strike years. And we listened to it. And I had never heard Groucho Marx before. And I was laughing at him. But I was rather curious who Jack Benny and Rochester were. And somehow... I don't know exactly how, but I ended up running my steam out on the Charlie McCarthy tape. So I was like, I'm going to listen to the rest of them. So I listened to Abbott and Costello, Burns and Allen, and then I finally got to Jack. Uh, And I went through all the ones that are basically, it's the 1944 season where Jack's making the horn blows at midnight. That's kind of like the thread in that collection. Um, And so I just grew enamored with the characters like I recognized Phil Harris's voice instantly going like it's blue. It's like that's they, they, these these different ways that you, you know, connect back to the past. And I fell in love with Dennis Day going like, oh, he's a silly kid like me. And um, and just kind of learning slowly but surely I learned what the Jack Benny character was. And that is how I basically got acquainted to it. Not too long after I, that's when I joined the club. But those tapes were instrumental in me even learning about it because we didn't have the internet back then. We were just on the cusp of CDs um, being like cemented as the as the greatest thing, and then only a few short years later would we get iPods and the internet being a source of music and show collecting. Mm-hmm. So your work with Jay and the Gasmans and all these people who kept Spurdback, especially Spurdback keeping old time radio alive in this country specifically the the them eventually getting to tape then getting to my earbuds <laughs> is the only reason that i can sit here proudly and read five jack benny books in a single year and not <laughs> and, and not feel like i've you know like going like oh god what have i done <laughs> like i could be i could be interacting with people my own age um <laughs> but, <laughs> um so that's but it but it's but it's that that kind of like inspiring thing of just like the connection thread and what you started with this fan club that is ultimately inspiring to it and i wanted to ask you a little bit about this you've talked about this before whether through the fan club through the newsletter and through other shows but 
you actually, uh, apart from Jack, who was the one who had passed away, and I believe Mary, you basically went out and interviewed everybody that was still around at that point and got interviews with them. Yeah. Um, my very first interview was in 1984 with Frank Nelson, and I'm glad I started with him because he passed away not long thereafter. Um, you know, there were a few people that I missed, like Milt Josephsberg. Um, John Tackberry died before I was born, so I, you know, missed, missed him, you know, from the get-go. But, um, but yeah, I, I was in college when I interviewed Dennis Day. I cut a 500-level uh, math statistics course to do that. Um, I never cut classes. I was a good little, good little student, but... Um, it's Dennis Day. <laughs> you know, and that's when he was free. And I actually went back. I, I was friends with the professor and told her um, what I'd done. She just, she was, she was, she was, um, oh, she was like the Ned Sparks of statistics, you know. <laughs> and if you can imagine <laughs> A female Ned Sparks, but of course, you know, what's, or, or a woman teaching a, a 500 level statistics course. So I told her, it's like, I, I have to confess something. What I, um, when I wasn't in class the other, the other night, yeah, I, it's because I was interviewing Dennis Day and she just kind of gives me this long, flat look and then says, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, what you don't what you don't know, Laura, is after you left, she started cranking her own copy of Clancy Lowered the Boom. <laughs> Metal image of her her doing a jig to that. It's <laughs> brain is also saying does not compute on that. But yeah. anyhow, yeah, no, I I was I was exceptionally lucky, and and it's kind of funny that that um, just possibly taking us off in a, in a totally other direction, but not intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, we had a convention in 2003, and I look back to the folks that we had at that convention, and it's like, oh, my God, everyone's dead. Um, you know, we had Al Gordon, who was one of Jack's writers, and Irving Fine, and, and uh, Kay Lineker, who, who played the receptionist in, in tonight's movie. Mm -hmm. And Giselle... You know, and all these people are gone. And I'm like, you know, so for a long time it's been like, well, you know, why do anything? Because, you know, who would we have talk? And then in being encouraged by my board um, throughout the idea of doing a, a Jack Benny convention, you know, next, next February on Jack's birthday. And wow, you know, it's been this head slapping experience that all these people are still around. Now, most of them worked with Jack when, when they were, you know, kids. We have Beverly Hills beavers and so forth that are I still around. I know one particular beaver that's been close to my heart since I was a kid. His, his, his real name is Mr. Burns, but we all call him Harry Shearer. <laughs> oh, yes. Mm -hmm. When I saw that interview on the shout box set, I was just like, ah, it's... I can now point to everybody and say, see, Mr. Burns had such a legacy. You have no idea. <laughs> oh, you know, sometime I'll, I'll, I'd have to go back and look it up to see what the date is. But I think my personal favorite of all the tout routines, you know, hey, bud, bud. Yeah. <laughs> Come here a minute. Come here. Yeah. 
What elevator are you taking? You know, whatever. Uh-uh. Um, uh-uh. And, <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. And it, the uh, Sheldon Leonard, who played the tow- uh, the racetrack tout, um, is Santa Claus. And, you know, so oh. kids are coming up and, you know, it's like, what do you want for Christmas? You know, <laughs> A dolly? Uh-uh. <laughs> I can't remember exactly how it goes, but the thing is that Shearer goes up there and, and Shearer was just born a performer. You know, he, he's just, he's gotten his genetics and, and he was so, he was heads and shoulders above the rest back then. And he comes up and and ends up flipping it so that Harry, so Harry Shearer is doing the tout back to the tout. <laughs> and, you know, even though Jack isn't in it, I think it's just the best turn on that that bit. So anyhow, hold up. It, 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 well, it has two legends in it, too, because we just discussed Harry Shearer, but Sheldon Leonard... Um, and I love bringing this up to my real nerds co-host Ryan Frost is like, you know, you don't have Dick Van Dyke without the Jack Benny show because, because you like Dick Van Dyke show so much. Sheldon Leonard that got that show made and he started with Jack. So yep. boom. boom. <laughs> and he and of course he shakes it off and goes like, yes, Zach, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> back back to back to why Dick Van Dyke is the greatest. And I'm like, yes, he is. But. Sheldon and actually I was re-watching the Thin Man series not too long ago and Sheldon's in the third one <laughs> he's oh, really? just like yeah he's in the, it's it's um uh another Thin Man I believe it is and it's and he's um but he plays one of the gangsters that Nick goes and interrogates and you know naturally it being Nick you know he gets himself into a little bit of danger with Sheldon but mm-hmm. um, not as much danger as other people in that movie but um, it's okay. It's it's okay. He and that dog solved that mystery with uh, with uh, with uh, Nora, and it's fine. Um, um, <laughs> I I love those. And Sheldon even carries that that character into Star Trek, for God's sake, you know, in piece of the action. And mm-hmm. it's just like no, he was he was he had that that uh, part so solidly. So he was a solid he was a solid showbiz like work workhorse like just like any. Anything that you could do to get something done, he was going to get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, with 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 the Star Trek connection, the first time I ever saw Frank Gorshin was live on stage when he did to say goodnight, Gracie, at the Buell Theater in in Colorado when I was a kid. I I I kicked and screamed to go to that show, and my dad dutifully took to me, despite the fact that I had misbehaved the day before. <laughs> <laughs> It was worth it though because I saw like it, that show is that one man show he did is incredible. I still remember it vividly. It's him on stage, and one of the things he showed was the uh, Roman statue bit from Jack's television special with him and George and <laughs> George <laughs> singing "Ain't Misbehaving." <laughs> um, you know, I think, so I, I think if memory serves, and I may have just formulated this memory after hearing my mom tell that story i think that's the bit that they were doing when i got bored and ran out of the room oh really <laughs> get me into jack i rewatched it during quarantine and i i kept pounding like i i kept pounding the cha- arm of my chair and if i ever think back to when i was a kid that probably didn't interest me as much but now that i'm older i'm like this is all the things right here this these two the those birds landing on their heads like i, I it's it's a wonder to watch mm-hmm. um and really quickly before we dive into the movie because we do have to talk about this movie and we could be here for hours and i'm definitely going to have you back just on the strength of this first part of the conversation 
conversation alone. But you told um you told a story once before. I would love for you to retell it if possible to the audience. When you met Phil Harris, <laughs> what? <laughs> please tell the the good audience what happened. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I, it's such vivid memories of, of that day. And it was kind of funny because he had a, he actually was in Bill Morrow's house. Bill Morrow was one of Jack's writers. Um, yep. and, um, and in fact, Phil's character was kind of more based on, on Bill's actual life, you know, a hard drinking and, and woman chasing, um, yep. than, than <laughs> Phil's. And, so I'm driving around, you know, trying trying to find this house, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's there's Phil Harris in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts, you know, look, looking extremely tan and waving at me. And it's like, oh my god, Phil Harris is waving at me. I did. I'm through the looking glass now. Um, so anyhow, parked, went in. Now my mom and I had had this long running joke of well. If you ever get to meet Phil Harris and he offers you a drink, watch out. You know, and that was <laughs> that was the extent of the joke. That's all you really need. To it's say. like, oh, ha ha, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so I was I was in this this chair that my memory has expanded to be about the size of the rocking chair that Lily Tomlin's Edith Ann was sitting in. Um, <laughs> at least proportionately, it was it, obviously it wasn't that big, but that's just the the way my memory has it. Um, and I would say Phil and I are talking for a while, but you know what? Uh, Phil, Phil and Mickey Rooney were two people that I could have walked in, just put the recorder down, sat back, and when they stopped <laughs> talking, turn the recorder off and walk out. Um, but uh, and with Phil Harris, that's totally fine. Um, so anyhow, after a while, he's like, would you like some iced tea? And it's like, you know, that'd be lovely. And so he goes to the kitchen, pours some iced tea, had it, had it all made up. No powder stuff here, you know? Yeah. And he puts this, this glass in my hand and I look down all of a sudden here's my mom's voice in my head, you know? You meet Phil Harris, and he offers you a drink. And <laughs> it's kind of like a Hitchcock moment, like all the voices in your head just kind of like expounding the advice of the past. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking down at it, and I looked up at him, and I said, there's not vodka in this, is there? And without missing a beat, he looks at me, and without a trace of irony, says, no, you want some? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, Wanga. <laughs> that lovable, oh, Twitch. <laughs> I got a question for you. He was yeah, working yeah. A, a movie for Disney at that time. I think that was that was pretty much all he was doing was voiceovers for Disney and his golf tournament at that point. Yeah. And um, he was working on a movie called Rockadoodle. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, I've not seen it. Tell tell me what you know. I have vague memories of this. Um, he plays a dog. Uh, <laughs> all I remember because he's he, playing Thomas O'Malley in the Aristocats. So. Yeah, he's um. Well, yeah, it's stark contrast. Phil was able to play many animals. He played a bear twice, two different types of bears. And he could um, Mel Blanc around for his money. He could. Um, and I will tell you that Rockadoodle is one that I need to go back to because um. 
between that and Rover Dangerfield, these are two moments in the Don Bluth era where my co-host Ryan and I have discussed them to where it's like, we should go back to those and see what they're worth. And, <laughs> um, but Rockadoodle, I remember like, I mean, it's, you know, what's funny if, if I recall correctly, it's kind of feels like when Jimmy Stewart, um, was voicing, um, Wyatt Burp in Five Goes West, where it's kind of like, Oh, it's near the end. Like you can kind of hear, you can hear, you can hear a lag. Um, but it's Phil. Um, I, I, I can't not hear that voice and not be giddy with glee. Like Phil, Phil Harris's voice is, I've come to the conclusion that he's the only, um, actor or personality of that era where it is impossible to do an imitation of him. You cannot do an imitation of Phil Harris. His voice was so specific. I, uh, I have not heard anybody do it correctly. Or anybody, I've I've tried it myself and I can't do it. Um, the clo- and and part of it's because my voice sounds like it's on helium all the time. But <laughs> the um, I I've I described this in the first episode. My voice is Tom Snyder if he inhaled all the helium, and I stand by that to this day. Um, because because it, it's it, the Tom Snyder of it all comes from the fact that I go um 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 and 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 uh 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 uh, uh, uh yeah. Um, <laughs> and every time I lo- watch that Romero Hooper, uh, it's a r- interview with Romero and Co- uh, Don Coscarelli about horror films. <laughs> he s- keeps stammering over himself, going like, "Well, when I was a kid, the movies were uh, scary for different reasons." Uh-huh. <laughs> but, I didn't but, notice that. I, I was watching a, a bit of um. Rich Little imitating what, like, Carson, Jack, and George Burns all at the same time. And and Rich Little is, is doing his Carson imitation. He's like, what do you think about that, huh, 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 huh? And it's like, <laughs> you know, that's right, but I would yeah, not, it's, never it's, noticed that. It's like, imitations are a game that, like, and I do cheap ones on my show because that's that's about the level of quality I've been able to train my voice to. Like, the, like the, the closest that I can get to is Jimmy Stewart, but Jimmy, Jimmy is a very, very um, dirty man on this show. Very, very, very dirty. Um, just has no compunction about drinking openly in the middle of the daylight. Like, it's... He, he's a he's a nasty man, Laura. I, I've never... Wow. <laughs> when I did the Hitchcock um, series, I decided for whatever reason that Jimmy Stewart was going to be the, the, the subject of much. What if, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and... I, 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 I get that in that, you know, when you think of Jimmy, you know, wall, Jimmy Stewart and, um, <laughs> oh. you know, now, Hey, cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, um, well. That, that, you know, you think of, it's a wonderful life and Mr. Smith goes to Washington and mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart is just, you know, so uh, just, just, you know, good in the Frank Capra sense of good, you know, which means super good and super white good, you know? Uh, and, yeah. And, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we can get into that, but. Oh yeah, oh, we, yeah will. we will. <laughs> so, so yeah. So to, to take him and make him like a, uh, you know, drunk uh, <laughs> old man. I, you know, um, I, I irony is at the root of my particular comedic taste. We 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 uh, I'll, I'll I'll send you links to the um, Vertigo. Well, we did a Jimmy Stewart special where we talked about the man who knew too much uh, original and remake 
and then uh, Vertigo. It was a big four-hour thing at the top of the pandemic to be like, look, here's two episodes. Enjoy it. And um, I made it basically, I just called it the Jimmy Stewart special. And it was, <laughs> and it, it pulled out all the stops. We had, uh, th- those two episodes are me basically running rimshot wild with the Jimmy Stewart impression to the point where, I I have had to figure out how to find a movie to talk about with him on this new show, uh-huh. um, but I have to wait a little bit because I'm like it's got to be the perfect thing. It can't be Mr. Smith. It can't be um, It's a Wonderful Life. It's got to it's got to be. I think it's going to end up being the Philadelphia story. To be honest, <laughs> like, okay. yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and and that would be a wonderful one. But but to get it to Phil, who is in this movie today, mm-hmm. you can't you can't change that. Like you can't. Nobody can tap into that voice. And what's more, it made it hard when um, the Jungle Book remake came out in 2016 that Favreau did, where I was like, this is ridiculous. Nobody's going to be able to do a Baloo like Phil Harris. And I will give credit where credit's due. Murray is the closest approximation in personality to do the Baloo character his, his way. He does. It is very much so. It's not the voice. He does He does sing in it, and it is very charming. It's not Phil, but I shouldn't expect it to be Phil. It's like when Star Wars fans get angry at the Solo movie, and I'm like, guys, it's a young Han Solo movie. What were you expecting? <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, we're here to talk about Man About Town and not George Lucas About Town. Um, <laughs> so... Laura, I asked you what films you would like to talk about, and you first suggest a Benwell film, and then I didn't realize it was a joke for about two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) You seem very into it, and it's like, okay, I'll have to do my homework to be able to talk for an hour about Andalusian Dog, because the film itself is only like, but but it would be worth discussing because Dolly and Benwell and that whole connection ended up coming down to the Marx Brothers down the line. And just talking about Dolly and Hollywood and Benwell, like that whole subject is loaded. <laughs> like, and, you know, I have a copy of, of Giraffes on Horseback Salad, which is the name of the um, sadly unmade Marx Brothers movie that was scripted by Dolly. Yeah, and it's uh, J- Josh Frank's book, which is a beautiful, beautiful um, uh, graphic novel from what I've been told. I still have to pick it up, um, but I've heard interviews with him talk about it. Well, if you want to borrow my copy, it, it sat on the table here for a long time, but the thing is there are so darn many cool books in the world that, that other stuff pick, kept getting thrown on top of it. Yeah. So finally I've taken it downstairs to put on my to-read shelf, if there's any room on my to-read shelf. Um, but yeah, I heard the, I heard the, uh, what was it? I think it was a fresh air review of it. And it's like, oh my God, Salvador yeah. Dali wrote a script for the Mark brothers. Am I dreaming? <laughs> yeah, no. And Bill Marks, actually Bill Marks was one of the first people Josh Frank had called apparently. And Bill, um, Bill loved the book. So that was like, and so that it's always good when you get the approval of Bill Marks on it. Um, but so, uh, but the other films you select, obviously, you said, like, well, let's talk about a Jack film. And I pitched a couple, and you ended up pitching back Man About Town, which is a film that I don't think many people would know exists in Jack's canon. When it comes to Jack and film, we're talking about a very, very niche subject, um, one that has probably isolated my entire audience that even exists if they do. And um, 
the the big ones you'd know him for are To Be or Not To Be, which will be an episode with Ryan. Um, the Horn Blows at Midnight, if you are really, really interested in Jack, you know about that. Um, George Washington Slept Here is another one. Um, I think there are people who are aware of Jack being in Hollywood Review of 1929, but they're talking about that movie and the the scheme of being a, one of the first talking musicals. Right. Um, um, so Jack in cinema, I think like one of the big Jack stories that happens with cinema honestly happens, has to do with the Sunshine Boys, which is, well, Jack was supposed to play the role. They did screen tests, and this is around the time that Jack had passed away. And so he was getting sick, and um, with all indication, that Irving Fine had finally started representing George Burns, and basically Jack um, be, benighted the role over to um, uh, uh, George, and that's how George ended up being in the Sunshine Boys and winning his supporting actor Oscar and kicking off that Burnsessance that we had mm-hmm. um, up until his death. I like um, the term um, Burnsessance. I'm going to the Burns. I think I think I would have liked that. I would have liked that a lot. I I, I you know I, I would have loved to have seen Tiger Rag in the middle of the Burns Burns with a big sign that says the Burns Assance. Um, <laughs> how I I mean. <laughs> Let's see if you know this. And and of, of course over Skype there's a delay, so we can't really sing together. But down in the garden where the red roses grow. Yeah, oh, there you go. Oh, oh how I, I want to go. go. Love me like a flower. Cuddle me an hour. Love me, let me learn the red rose rag. There you go. Boom, 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 boom. But then you need bumsy. That's where I get that. The second part is where I get chunked up. Red leaves falling in a rosy romance. Please, I'm coming down. How's your chance? Don't go hunting possum. Linger with the blossoms and the flowery flowery bowery dance. Oh, honeymoon, honeymoon shine, shine on, on in June. June. Hear me croon this lovely tune. And that's where it stops in the evening with George Burns because he says that's still not a good introduction song. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I love that that evening with George Burns. If you're looking for an evening with um, performance that is delightful and not sad, the George Burns one is the one to listen to. The Groucho one is uh, harder to listen yeah, to. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> I didn't mean to bring it on a down note, but <laughs> there were two evening widths. <laughs> you know, uh, you know what though? It's it was because of that performance that Marvin Hamlish ended up with the uh, the duck. Yeah, you bet your life. So. Yeah, and I wonder Hamlet. where it is now. Oh, uh, I mean, I, if we find it. Then I'm gonna hang it up in my. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy it and I'm gonna hang it up in my ceiling. And any time somebody says the secret word on my watch, that's when they'll get a fake hundred dollar bill. I'm there not going go. to give them actual money. I'm gonna keep in the spirit of Jack and not give them the money. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I still love that. The fist down the duck's throat. And so- <laughs> I, I, I still love the the Groucho on Jack's show and he um he 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 just says flat out to Jack it was Rodney in rehearsal yes <laughs> you know, I it it was it was interesting to me when you were telling about hearing the show from forty four with Groucho on it because mm-hmm. you know the whole thing that led up to that no I don't. I'll I'll see if I can tell this quickly because I know we're supposed to be talking about Man About mm-hmm. Town, but you know, <laughs> much like the production of Man About Town, it took a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a great movie. You should see it. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> anyhow, that that Groucho was going to be on Jack's show, and 
then Jack sent over the script and Groucho apparently started just ripping it up one side and down the other and blah, blah, blah. And this is wrong and that's wrong and blah, blah, blah. And Jack is like, you know what? I don't need this. Cut him. And so they canceled Groucho's guest appearance because he didn't like Groucho tearing apart his writers and so forth. And so time goes by and eventually they run into each other, you know, maybe the Hillcrest Country Club or whatever. And Groucho says, hey, why am I never on your show? And Jack <laughs> says, why? I'll tell you why. Because last time we ba-da-da-da-da-da-da. And Groucho's like, oh, okay. And so they sent this script over to him. And, you know, he he absolutely adhered to the, the script that they gave him. Mm-hmm. And sadly, you know, go back and take a list of that show. You know, that when you, when you hear it, 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 it's almost like he, the sound of Groucho Marx chained to the floor. Because yeah. he's just working so hard to stay within this and not, you know, go beyond it. Now, fortunately, that didn't happen in the television version where Jack's on, you know, on you bet your life. Yeah. But, um, but anyhow, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what led up to that. And it's that's like, the, ooh, I wouldn't have started anybody on that, but I'm glad it took hold for you. I think my dad must have picked it because it had Groucho Marx on it. Um, or he just remembered Jack. Like, I've, I've never gotten a clear answer out of him as to why he picked that, because I don't think he remembers that story, but... <laughs> Except of Jack and Groucho Marx, it's like, okay, it sounds good as a premise. Um, but then let's say Paps Blue Ribbon Town. Eee. Yeah. Um, so and those are, are a little hard to listen I to. I do like the line, uh like uh right now I'd like Hedy Lamar, but my sponsor wants me to stay blue ribbon beer. <laughs> <laughs> so they they hit Mar and Bel- I think it's no it's not Morrow and Beloin at this point it's now uh Perrin Balls or Tackerberry and Josephberg um they get good dialogue for Gra- for Groucho I do think um the my favorite interaction is the one where they're kind Jack's definitely cracking up you can hear it but they're talking about gee Groucho isn't California wonderful you're right Jack it's a beautiful day not a cloud in the sky <laughs> and it starts raining in the background and you hear a, the sound man's beating a drum and you start hearing raindrops falling and... oh that's right yes yes mm-hmm. yeah it's, that was on the radio version yeah and it's um it's a very um uh it's one of those things where it's like the thing that confused me as a kid is like, why isn't Groucho throughout the whole show? That makes more sense now hearing that story. Uh, so that that's a 20 something year old mystery solved for my head, uh, <laughs> which I'm glad I I'm glad I have it now. Thank you, Laura. You're changing my life yet again. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what was this movie thing again? Oh, yes. Man About Town. <laughs> Man About Town. We could be here forever. Um, but so Man About Town. um as a film, it's not discussed about Jacks, but what's interesting is that the legacy of Man About Town has ended up resurging in the strangest way, and it actually comes from a, another member of the board, uh, Dr. Kathy Fuller Seeley, um, who wrote a book called Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy, which if you haven't read it and are interested in what we've been talking about, her book is something to pick up. It is one of the first Jack books written by somebody who wasn't directly involved in Jack's camp. 
Um, um, and uh, uh, the what's interesting about it is in her book, she talks a lot about radio cross-promotion with film. At the time of radio's ascendance, um, with film still being primarily a silent medium, a lot of studios were using radio stations as a way to promote their films. Uh, Warner Brothers had one of the best examples of this. And if you've listened to The Secret History of Hollywood um, with former Shamley guest Adam Roach, he um, he has a little story in there about the Warner Brothers forming their own radio station at the behest of Sam Warner's insistence because Sam was always the technical uh, genius in this realm. Um when movies start coming in with sound, it does prove to be a bit of a competition. And what Kathy talks about in her book that I find amazing is about how movies and film had to basically integrate with that cross promotion. And so, but there was a time when certain stars weren't allowed on the radio. I know MGM had a big issue with it. They would also have that issue with television. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jack though, being that he came to his film career, kind of fascinates me in terms of how he got it because he really does start in film after vaudeville. Um, he gets picked up for Earl Carroll's vanities and then admits that Thalberg brings him out. Nope, nope, nope. Oh, wait, what is it? Yeah. Uh, let me, let me adjust your timeline a little bit. Thalberg puts him in t- under a uh, contract, I think in 1928. Um, and Earl Carroll's vanities wasn't until 30, 31. Oh, that's so, right. That's right. Yeah, so he, he actually got out of his. Yeah, go ahead. You yeah, got it. Yeah, Jack got out of his contract at MGM to go to the Vanities. Right. There That's you right. go. Um, um, there we go. All right. This is why I brought her on because I wasn't going to remember this stuff. Um, and I apologize uh, for just kind of stepping on you. I hope uh, oh, no. that wasn't rude. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. I, I disclosed from episode one I'm a moron. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so anyway, though, but, but Thalberg put him in. Hollywood Review of 1929, which is basically a film where he's an MC throughout a variety show, essentially. It's it's a musical review. You get comedy sketches in between. One of the big notable things about Hollywood Review of 1929 is it's one of the first cinematic instances of the song Singing in the Rain, which wouldn't become a big thing until Gene Kelly started singing in the rain, literally. Um, and um, But he then goes through a very... Um, Sorry, I had this list up here. I want to get it out. This is from Milt Josephsberg's book. Thankfully, Milt Josephsberg is more reliable than IMDb when it comes to this discussion. Um, it's one of it's one of the few things that Milt Josephsberg gets correct in his book. Um, <laughs> I, uh, hey, he get, he gets a lot right. I just there's some stuff where I'm like, really? Um, yeah, there's no, so, some stuff that's a little skewed, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but so anyway, he does the Hollywood Review of 1929. Uh, he end up he ends up doing a movie for a uh, a poverty row studio called Tiffany Studios called Medicine Man, which is one of the first Jack Benny movies I ever saw because it was the only one available, um, uh, or at least on yeah, DVD. Tiffany wasn't around to defend the rights to it, and besides, the yeah. movie sucks. So who would yeah, want yeah, the rights to it? It's not good. Um, and then Chasing Rainbows. Um, which Jack referred to at one point as chasing box office or the studio did at some point, um, transatlantic merry-go-round, which he says in his book, the less said about that, the better. Um, yeah. And then it's in the air from 1935. Um, and that's at that point he stops, goes to the vanities. And also within that time, Ed Sullivan puts him on the radio. Yep. Um, 
and the the first lines Jack ever said on the air were, um, this is Jack Benny, there will now be a slight pause while you say who cares. Um, so if anybody from episode one was wondering why I made that silly joke at the top, now you know. Um, <laughs> well, you know, actually, you know if, if we want to be absolute purists about it, um, people have found some listings of Jack appearing um, on radio when he was out for MGM. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was nothing. It was nothing of great significance, but it would say, you know, and Jack Benny will be on this broadcast, and so we can tell that that theoretically that w- weren't those weren't the first lines, but you know, we're getting into print the legend at that point. So. Yeah, exactly. And well, and it's interesting because like. Actually, I have a question for you. Are some of those early ones available to your knowledge, or are these part of the dustbins of stuff that didn't get saved? Well, the first one certainly is. Um, the, or it, well, Ed Sullivan, no. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't think anybody was recording that. But the the very first Canada Dry show in May of thirty two yeah. is. So, but the the promotional material for MGM probably doesn't exist anymore. Oh, 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 I didn't realize what you were asking me. So oh, yeah. so you're asking about promotional material for those early movies? Yeah, the ones that we would that listed that he would have been appearing on. Oh, I don't know. I need to you know, that was one of the things when I was doing a little bit of homework on Man About Town. It's like, okay, it grieves me to my core that I can't go, you know, wherever the Paramount archives and look through the production papers of this. Mm-hmm. And, right now so so i'd imagine it's it there's probably something in the archives somewhere it's got to be so okay yeah no believe me there are days where i want to go to the paramount archives too for not just for jack's films but for a multitude of films and then i and then i just want them to put the movies out there because well it actually would be universal it would be putting out the films um everything's a mess because mca bought things um (laughs) it's a good it's a it's a good thing though, because MCA made sure they got released for the most part. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you, Lou Wasserman. Then again, yeah. Lou Wasserman wasn't around by the time they were releasing stuff. No, but Lou did the Lou did a lot of great things. He helped out Hitchcock, and he got some films in his library that would end up uh, entertaining the masses. Without him, I don't see the Bob Hope Bing Crosby Road pictures. So there you go. Oh really? Uh, oh yeah. Well, yeah, because they there were Paramount films, and like actually, I think. Before I ever saw a Jack film, it would have been Hope and Crosby because those were the ones that I was like, oh, those are available. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I even saw an Abbott and Costello movie until I was like 13. Um, but anyway, at this point, though, um, uh, within, w- within the start of his radio career, Jack um, goes to obviously he starts with Canada Dry, which those a lot of those early shows are like again he say he he recorded a bunch. There's only like a there's there's very minimal missing episodes of Jack's show, um, and uh, at, at, at by the time he's into his radio show in 1936, he joins for the Broadway Melody of 1936, and that's when he signs his Paramount contract, and Paramount. Much like MGM, it seems like at first they don't know exactly what to do with him. Now, MGM definitely didn't know what to do with him. That is like, that's just not even a question. Um, And when we talk about what to do with Jack Benny in film, the reason why it's hard is because Jack's personality evolved over time. 
the character that people would know Jack for developed over the course of vaudeville radio and television. Yep. And and even in these early years, the cheapskate thing isn't fully um, uh, established or f- cemented the way it would be in the 40s. Um, so he's mainly portrayed as kind of like a huckster or like a, a slick con man. <laughs> um, like he's got uh, College Holiday has a great example of that. Oh, yeah. Um, but College Holiday is also a movie that I'd actually like to talk with you about, not because of Jack, but because of the plot of that movie, because it's ridiculous. <laughs> Um, scary isn't it (laughs) John John Henderson of the podcast this day and Jack Benny is the one who alluded me to what that movie was and showed me how to find it on YouTube and it is it's a comedy about eugenics it's like yeah what what more what 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 more hilarity could you want than Jack Benny George Burns Gracie Allen and eugenics Like Mark Ray too, yeah. <laughs> it's um, but yeah, and it has blackface in it, so you know it's just yeah. That, and that's not the only Jack film that has blackface, but uh, well, well, we'll get to that a little bit in today's discussion. Um, but uh, so he goes to do Broadway Melody of 1936. Um, he then ends up doing College Holiday, which again we talked about you. Uh, then he does the big broadcast in 1937, and around that um, uh, first broadcast for that is when he gets Phil Harris on the show, around this general area of time. Um, and then he does Artists and Models, uh, which is a movie that, amongst other things, features a wonderful musical sequence by Louis Armstrong. Um, it also has a problematic appearance by Martha Ray. Um, uh, although I will say, in rewatching that sequence, I had to obviously I was cringing at Martha Ray in it. But once I separated myself out from it, I was able to look at Louie's performance and go like, damn it, man. Louie was fucking incredible. (laughs) Like it is a (laughs) it is a beautifully directed sequence by Raoul Walsh. Like Raoul Walsh was an amazing director in that. And actually, he worked well with Jack, I would I would argue. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he does Artists and Models Abroad, which is a film I have not seen um, because it is very hard to find. Uh, In fact, it's impossible to find. And I'm not going to pay $93 for a VHS that may exist. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I have to go down and, and, and sort through the carnage in my basement to see if I have a VHS copy. And if I do, then... Yeah, and, then... Here, and, and, the thing, and the thing about our film that we are discussing today, I will point out, there's no... Um, there's there's no like easy way to watch Man About Town. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's a film that has to be has to be shared or acquired through VHS, along with a lot of the other Mark Sandrich films that he did with Jack. Um, but then uh, after Artists, Artists and Models Abroad, he does Man About Town in ni- for ni- in 1939. Now 1939 is kind of an interesting year for Jack. Um, not just with this film, but the, it, through the book, through the books that I've read, and you may have to, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but Jack also went through a um, around the like latter half of the year 1938, gearing into the production of Man About Town. Um, Jack found himself in the middle of a scandal. <laughs> yeah, um, the Shepro scandal. Um, this is a complicated story. In the respect that Jack is not guilty of anything, neither was George Burns, but they technically smuggled diamonds across across, well, across international waters. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a little bit of a high high summary of it, but not yeah. not oh, yeah, quite, but it, you know. Yeah, exactly. It, it 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 was a 
it was a scandal involving a man who sold them jewelry without telling them where he had got it from. Mm-hmm. And Jack was a very trusting man, very sweet-natured, gentle man. Um, and George, well, you know, like George was not going to like be fully aware of that stuff either. And so when it happened, they, um, when the U.S. picked up Shapiro, they were named. And Jack got through the scandal. Um, there was um, a bit of a worry with the network, with um, Young and Rubicam Agency and everybody involved with the radio show. And there was certainly concern with the studio in terms of how this would affect things. But um, they ended up pleading, uh, uh, Jack pleaded not guilty and went to trial. Um, and in the end, George Burns was fined 8000 and given a suspended sentence. And Benny um, was fined 10000 and received a, resp- a suspended sentence. Um, actually, the judge, I, mean, I've had the ar- I have the article from the L.A. Times. The judge told them, sometimes men who are prominent in pictures and radio are just easy marks for smart people. But you should have been smart enough not to fall in love with such a plan. Um, but Jack goes in to make this film. Now, I've I'm decided to source a lot of this from Kathy's book because hers is a little bit more in depth than I again than I thought it would be. Again, if you don't have this book, pick it up. Um, but among the things that happened was that Mark Sandrich was basically had figured out a way to get Jack's film radio persona into um, onto film and not just him, but the characters as well. And so that's why this film has Phil Harris and Eddie Rochester Anderson in it. Um, And Mark Sandrich is, is, is kind of an amazing director. It's kind of astounding. He started with shorts um, in through the early years up till about 1933, one of the last shorts he would make is So This Is Harris in 1933, which is one of the big reasons Phil Harris became a big name. Um, that's also a short film that won an Academy Award for short subject because really? it's not, 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 yeah, not because Phil Harris is amazing in it, although he's Phil Harris, he's amazing, period. But there's a lot of innovative techniques visually that that documentary uses uh, to tell its story. Um, and, uh, he then goes in, but he does feature films starting in 1928 with runaway girls. Um, and then he runs through a series of interesting classics. Um, the biggest ones that you would know today are top hat and holiday Inn. Um, he died in 1944 of a heart attack all of a sudden. (laughs) Um, and, uh, he was a very, um, uh, he was considered a very influential director of his time. His son, Jay, ended up becoming a television director. Um, and a, and the only feature film that he directed was a Goldie Hawn, Chevy Chase movie that I am not remembering the name of right now. Um, uh, but the... So Sandrich, be, after Top Hat, he starts becoming a little bit more of a producer-director, but bef- like just before that happens, he makes Man About Town. Um and this is the point where I want to start talking about the plot of the movie because the production notes that I have on my end of this film are kind of scant. I don't really have much about the physical production of the film. Um, and in all the books that I had read through, again, Kathy's is the one with the most information on it. Um, and even then it's kind of like, 
how do we get Jack Benny to work on film? So Mark Sandrich technically figures out how to do it. Um, I say technically because he manages to get Jack's earliest possible persona onto film, which is in the moment on radio when he was one of the number one draws on the ratings and Jello was selling like hotcakes because one of his, his eventual sponsor of many years was Jello and fun fact for anybody out there wondering, especially the Jello organization, Jack's the reason that your product exists today. Um, so, um, maybe mention him in a book about the history of Jello. Um, you know, I remember they, that discussion. They, general foods was a, uh, one of the major sponsors of our convention in 2003. So oh, good. Okay. Or not, they do know that, and State Farm knows it too. So Okay, because okay. I remember there was a discussion on the board about the history of Jell-O in a book, and they didn't mention Jack, and I was like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 yeah I think that's not so much the fault of General Foods as it is the, the author of the book. But, uh, oh, so you're saying that we're smarter than this author. Gotcha. <laughs> hey, you know, we... we, we we were talking about Wells offline and, and I think you <laughs> yeah. probably heard me tell the story of yeah. you know, just bumming around in the uh, sale cart of uh, Barnes and Noble and back in the day and seeing a Wells biography and picking it up. And there's a reference, you know, so immediately just like with any book of that ilk, I go to the index and look for references to Jack and I turn to one of them and <laughs> It references the your money or your life uh, bit and claims that the punchline to it is, you know, look, bud, I said your money or your life. And Jack says, I'm handing it over. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, yeah. And I got to that and just I probably, you know, made the 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 register uh, clerks crap their pants because I just let out this. You know what? Orson, not only Jack is spinning in his grave, but Orson Welles comes up like a spirit from the from the grave going like, wait a second. Hold on. I was on Jack's show. I'm more than sure I listened to that episode. This man does not represent my estate, the estate of Orson Welles, the legacy of Orson Welles, and certainly not radio comedy of the 40s. Ah, my ghost is super pissed right now. I'm going to eat a steak and leave me alone. <laughs> um, Have some wine. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah oh, the French champagne. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that. But so anyway, uh, he's the biggest, one of the biggest radio stars, if not the biggest radio star of his era at this time. Correct. So this personality at this point is going to be transferred over to film. Um and uh, Phil is going to come along for the ride as well. This is among the first films that Phil is in, really, as a feature player. And um, the introduction of Rochester in it is where things get interesting because it had only really been two years since Rochester debuted on Jack Re- Benny's radio program. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, um, uh, the thing with Rochester... Um, it's important that we talk a bit about his history, I think. Um, I, if you, listeners of the show recall, we talked about him and his role on Jack's show 
briefly in the Mad 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 World episode. We also talked about how it's amazing that Eddie has as much screen time as he does in a movie filled with comedians. And yeah. where Jack only gets 30 seconds in that movie, it's it's remarkable in, in my eyes. Um, but um, Eddie was a, a vaudevillian who basically um, worked the circuit along. He is hired by Jack and the writers for an episode of the show and it's after the almost immediately after the Fred Allen feud um quote unquote ends uh in uh the Hotel Pierre the yeah the first round of it yeah, yeah the, the the first round of the feud ladies and gentlemen that feud would never end um and and we may be talking about that feud more in detail when we talk about Love Thy Neighbor because that is a planned episode um um but so uh the the episode itself called for the part of a porter um, to interact with Jack. And Laura, you may have to correct me on this because there's a couple of different versions that I've heard of this, um, is that Benny Rubin was asked to do it and Benny refused to do it, um, which Benny Rubin was a character, a vaudevillian and character actor that Jack knew and was actually in a lot of sense bigger than Jack in certain circles. That um, isn't registering with me, but I, you know, I'd have to go back to Rubin's book and see if he makes any reference to that. Um, because I just know that they were they were auditioning uh, African American actors for the role, mm-hmm. and you know Eddie happened to to get this porter on the the train. And Jack keeps asking him if they're if the train stops in Albuquerque, mm-hmm. um, which actually they then wove quietly into to bits well into the subsequent years. But um, but yeah, they used him a couple times. He played a waiter named Pierre, mm-hmm. uh, all things you know, in a Buck Benny skit, and and um, then he played a guy who like finds Jack's watch. That's my favorite of him because it's just before he becomes his butler on the show. But there it's like go. it's it's a it's a funny interaction. Um, no, it's and and you know he was getting such an audience response. Jack at, at first was reluctant to take on another regular cast member mm-hmm. um, and kind of resisted the idea, but but he just, he had such chemistry there. And then, you know, I think of it um, like the uh, Botticelli uh, painting Venus on the Half Shell, um, which is obviously not the name of, of that painting, Birth of Venus, but that that just kind of like Venus uh, springs fully formed from, from the from the shell that the first time Jack and Rochester are doing their shtick, you know, as those characters, it's like, this is a conversation they could have had 20 years in the future and it would have been totally suitable. It's so it's just one of those Nirvana moments of, of the Benny writers at that moment, um, at Blaine and Bill Morrow Mm -hmm. where they just, you know, they just clicked right into it and it was beautiful. So. And and Rochester and Jack's history together throughout the years from that point onward is, I think one of the reasons why Jack's story has always stuck with me, that's one of the elements of it is um, Joan in one of the interviews she did when doing the press tour for her book, Sunday Nights at Seven, um, talked about like, you know, my, my father wasn't a crusader, but he l- couldn't mentally process the idea of bigotry. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is inspiring when talking about Jack and Rochester's role in this because Jack didn't see 
um, it's, it's, you know, the phrase didn't see color is one thing, but he literally just couldn't process why somebody would be discriminated for the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. And ja- Joan describes in, in her book that <laughs> she, that my daddy had a, his head in the clouds at times. So, you know, like you did of a daydreamer. And so like Jack had a very, almost unintentionally progressive view of how show business could run, but also how, you know, people could work together. And within that sphere of it, the thing to talk about is that the interactions that he has is that Rochester is the butler on the show, but the thing that separates it from other shows of its era, which include Amos and Andy and even the interactions that Fibber McGee and Molly have with Beulah is that Rochester talks back to Jack and And what's more is smarter than Jack 10 times out of 10. Like Mm -hmm. Jack is constantly made to be the fool. um, And I mean, I don't want to say the villain because it's very hard to put that label on that. He's a sad sack. Yeah, he's a sad sack. And for any times that this routine on the radio show delves into um, problematic material, it almost immediately bounces back with something that you never thought you'd hear of the era. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always surprised. And actually, this movie has a lot of moments in it where I'm like, they're getting away with this. Um, yeah. and, um, and, and that's kind of the beauty of watching these films with Jack and Rochester is that they do get away with so much that even though there's problematic material in films like this and to follow, when you watch these films, you, I would encourage people um, in their own comfort and time to look at these films as like, this is the stepping stone one had to take in order to push the envelope, which is interesting when you think of Jack as a envelope pushing comedian, it almost sounds ridiculous because he never worked blue. He really stuck to the routines of the era and whatnot, but there are small things in the writing of his show. Uh, the form, the, the style of his show, what it eventually became as more of like a sitcom kind of format he was always pushing different boundaries and that was one of them. And one that Kathy Seeley talks about in her book about how, you know, the, the black press and the general press viewed Rochester as a character. And it's a, it's a very broad um, and um, very discussion about like, it, it really depended on like where, what side of the fence you were on. But I think one thing was agreed is that there was always a very much a positive response to Rochester, regardless of any um, intricate misgivings. Right. Um, And so around this time, Eddie um, as a performer is also had been working in Hollywood uncredited um, for a while up until him getting that role on Jack's show. Um, He's in showboat. The 1936 uh, version of Showboat, he's uncredited, and his big break really is The Green Pastures, where he plays Noah. Right. Um, he goes through, uh, does a couple more roles uncredited, um, but uh, he he ends up, actually, he's also in Thanks for the Memory. I forgot about that. He's, he's in a Bob Hope movie, too. Go figure. Um, he's in Jezebel as Gross Bat. Um, he's in Hollow Lulu, which is a movie with Burns and Allen. Um, and then by the time we get up to Man About Town, before that, he plays Rochester in You Can't Cheat an Honest Man <laughs> um, with W.C. Fields and Bergen and McCarthy. Yeah. Um, and so already the character had 
struck a chord with people that he was able to do this character outside of Jack's realm. Well, <laughs> and, is... and you notice that in the uh, top credits of the mo- of Man About Town, he's just credited as Rochester. He isn't even Eddie Rochester Anderson. So yes, and it's um, it's very, and it's also like in big letters. So like, even though he's last yeah. billed, it's like the and, yeah. like. You know, like, and Mandy Patinkin. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And and so he's already a big, big deal across all boards. So getting him into this film, it's natural that Sandritz is going to be like, okay, he's going to be the Butler character to Jack's character, which is Bob Temple and not Jack. The one thing that I find interesting about the film is that they do try to make it not Jack, but Jack. Um, So they... I actually have a question on that because I was I was playing with this in my mind last night that the screenplay on this is by Maury Riskind. Yes, um, <laughs> and it's based on a story. And I I've got twenty bucks that says, and I don't have evidence on this, but and I probably don't either. <laughs> yeah, well. You know, so so consider this an open invitation for research to anybody who wants to take it up. I bet that that script existed before Jack was cast and that they were looking for a vehicle. And so you have Jack and you have the butler and you have the the love interest, whoever that's going to be. And you have the sidekick, there's for Phil. And, you know, when in that opening scene, now obviously they're they're making it, extremely clear that it's um, Jack because he's playing Love and Bloom off screen, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, but but the names aren't the same. And so, you know, after this, we get to Buck Benny Rides Again, Love Thy Neighbor, where it's like, okay, those are really the characters. And it's like, they, they took a... I just feel like they took a script and then adapted it. Which wouldn't um, surprise me in the least because Z Myers, um, who's actually Zion Myers and Alan Scott are credited with the story in all listings. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if this was a prior paramount property that they then hand over to Maury Riskin and say, Hey, you, you're a great writer who worked with the Marx brothers do this. And, um, and so that's what you end up getting. Actually, Buck Benny rides again is, uh, written by Bill Morrow and Ed Boulogne, adapted by Z Myers based on of a short story. So it's like it, it there's like an inception there of like adaptation. Like a lot of these premises of the era, especially with comedies, they're excuses to show off stars and, and they're yeah. also like so the plots are very uh, bare. They're very bare, very basic. And Maury Riskin is somebody who would definitely know how to work within this realm because he wrote this. He worked on the screenplay versions for the Coconuts and Animal Crackers, exactly, um, which are Broadway plays that the Marx Brothers did, and then Paramount turned into movies. And he's given the task of translate these to film. And, and when you hear stories about Animal Crackers and what he apparently wanted to keep in there, <laughs> like, like there's there's interesting ways. But I mean, Riskind, actually, Riskind's an interesting character to talk about in the grand scheme of history. Period, because <laughs> where where he went <laughs> in well, where terms did of he go? <laughs> well, his his when his political activism and shit. <laughs> like, oh 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 yeah, okay. yeah his his uh, his 
his later years, uh, there's stories about him still ranting about hippies when hippies were long gone. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this this really hurt Maury's feelings. Um, but Rory was still obviously a very talented writer, like one of the legends. Like he, if you like a night at the opera, which I do love, I don't love it as much as the Paramount years. He's one of the big guys, big guns behind that, and he also gets an Oscar nomination for writing My Man Godfrey. They, you can't go wrong with Riskend in your back pocket, regardless of it. And he works on His Girl Friday, um, and he ends up one of his like one of his later credits is is in is another Jack film, quote unquote, called It's in the Bag, which is the story itself um, is inspired film jack just happens to be in it yes yes uh the 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 the, the nemesis slash lovable friend fred allen yeah um and he uh then of the jack benny fan club incidentally yes exactly <laughs> which is just weird as all freaking get out for me to hear him come in and you know i'm president of the jack benny fan club and yeah, it's it's, it's, no, a be- it's a beautiful scene it's such a that's a good laugh for me that's a good laugh like it's it's one of those things where it's in the bag is actually a very accessible film because the story of it is based on the source material that would end up becoming the mel brooks film the 12 chairs um, uh, oh, but it, the, in in this version, it's set in America. In the Twelve Chairs, it's obviously set in Russia after the revolution. Um, okay. It's also one of Mel's best movies. It's it's a remarkably beautiful looking movie. Um, um, but anyway, with Man About Town, Maury Riskin gets this story, and from what we're assuming, shapes it into what this is, fitting these personalities in there. Um, I want to go through the credits on here really quickly. As I mentioned up at the top of the show, you have Jack Benny, you have Dorothy L'Amour, um, before she ends up becoming the um, the uh, third important part of a big trio with Bing and Bob in the road movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Edward Arnold um, playing Sir John Arlington. You have Benny Barnes playing Lady Arlington. You have Monty Woolley, my dear Monty Woolley, playing Henry Dubois. Uh-huh. Um, and you have Isabel Jeans playing his wife. You have Phil Harris as Ted Nash. You have Betty Grable as Susan Hayes. Apparently, in within some notes, um, and according to, um, I believe, um, let me make sure I got the note up here correctly, there was an interview um, uh, done with Kay Lineker mm-hmm. where she said that apparently, like, I believe she said that Grable was supposed to be um, the lead. In, in the lead, and then... Um, she had appendicitis, and so Dorothy Lamore re- replaced her. But Betty was able to get into the film for Fidgety Joe, which is one of the sequen- musical sequences in the film. Right. Um, so this was almost Betty Grable's, one of her big breakouts. Um, the year prior to this, she's in College Swing for like a hot second. She's not – her and Jackie Coogan, her then-husband at the time, they're both – kind of swinging around in that movie but that's not the important part of college swing the important part of college swing is learning what happens when gracie allen runs a college and i love every second of it It is (laughs) that and horse feathers is my favorite um college double bill of this era to watch oh my god i love horse feathers um and it's my favorite Marx Brothers movie, yeah. Oh, God. It's it's also the one that needs to be repaired the most, sadly. Um, but we op- let's go into this plot here. We open up, as you said, on Love and Bloom, which was Jack's theme that he hated. <laughs> I love him describing why he doesn't like it on mm-hmm. Johnny's show. <laughs> going like, I hate my song. Mm-hmm. Like, I, why, who, I like it as you When you... Let me ask you, Johnny, if this is what describes me. 
Can it be the trees that fill the breeze <laughs> with rare and magic perfume? Um, it's uh, it's it, but it but you know what? It's a beautiful song, and it and it has been associated with Jack all this time. There's some very beautiful cinematography going in, like pushing in and introducing the character of Jack with that lovely introduction. This is one of two films this year where a violinist plays prominently into the part because, again, Hound of the Baskervilles, what does Sherlock Holmes play? A violin, much to the annoyance of Dr. Watson. And Jack... (laughs) plays his violin much to the annoyance of his butler Rochester. Yep. Now Jack though is not Jack, he is Bob Temple, noted Broadway producer. <laughs> Which <sighs> this is the other instance of why this is a previous property because he's just playing a uh, he's a producer. He brings he basically brings uh an Earl Carroll Vanities or a uh Ziegfeld Follies to London. Yeah. It is the plot of the film. Yeah. Um and oh by the way, London they, we open up on a shot of Piccadilly and the fog, the thick fog. And I've had talks with people in the film club about uh, there are a lot of people from the UK on it. And they and they always comment like, God, I love how Hollywood perceived London. Yeah. <laughs> She's cobblestone street. I've never seen that. So. Yeah, like cobblestone streets, th- thick fog. They end up making fun of it a lot here to where it was one thing in the film where I'm like, ah, London's not that this. Oh, Hollywood, you're so cute. And <laughs> um, um, and so they um, they get into a conversation about how uh uh, the rest of the cast and the uh, people in his production have arrived on the ship. He gets a letter from uh, uh, from Diana Wilson, played by Dorothy Lamore. He he reads the note and and immediately jumps to the conclusion: this woman loves me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, you know, obviously, like there's like the you know the puppy love look in Jack's eyes, which he's kind of played with this persona all over the years in different forms and fashions. And Rochester is rightfully trying to tell him, like, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know, just a, a quick quick aside that, you know, as I was watching the, the exchange between the two of them right at the top of the movie, it's right there that that took me in the direction of this wasn't written for them. So I'm I'm almost wondering if Riskin just wrote it in general you know, to be a comedy, to be, you know, cast at a more convenient time. Um, because there's aspects of Rochester's, you know, exchange with him that it's really much more of a step and fetch it kind of ish character mm-hmm. yeah. than it is Rochester. You know, it's like, okay, Rochester's sleeping on the job and this and that. And, you know, just just listen to the first few minutes of it. And it's like this. No, this is a high and low character. You know, it's a boss and, and servant. Yeah. And now and now keep in mind, we're, when we're talking about Step and Fetch It, that is one of the more notor- notorious um, um, portrayals of African-Americans on screen. Yeah. It was, and, and the the actor playing it, it's a very um, it's, it's one of many painful and. Um, unfortunate images that permeated throughout old Hollywood. Um, Spike Lee talks a lot about it in different interviews and actually uh, step and fetch. It's a prominent part of the montage he does at the end of bamboozled, which if you haven't seen bamboozled guys, it's one of his best films. You should watch it. Um, And it talks about this subject in deeper detail than I will be able to, because I'm an idiot. Um, Um, But I'm still learning as everybody is. 
And in this exchange, you're right. It is much more leaning into the um, uh, servant aspect of it and the laying into stereotypes. What's what I found interesting is how it switches within a couple scenes um, into much more traditional Jack and Eddie material. Um, Because within that, within that, Klein had to have their hands on this script to do a little punching on it. I know they didn't get credit, but yeah, they looked at Maury and they were like, "Maury, you're kind of offensive as shit. We're gonna just change this a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Just gonna move this over here a little. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. But remind me again, Laura, who plays Mister Billingsley on um, Jack's show before Morrow and Boulogne leave? Uh, it's no, it's it, it's Ed Boulogne. It's all yeah, yeah Ed it's Ed Boulogne. Boulogne. That's what I thought. So I'm just imagining Ed Boulogne going, "Good evening, Mr. Riskin. Having a little bit of an offensive script, I see." <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I like quick, that. Quick, quick aside. I love when Mr. Billingley said, "Well, I'd love to, but I left my plunger at the Mocambo." <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it, I, I think they gave him that character, A, because Jack loved him on air. And and after Bill Morrow had gone into the army and, and, um, and uh, or, you know, military, I think it was the army. And then you get George Sam Milton Tack online and Ed stays around to kind of try and guide them to, to find their way and find their voice and so forth. Yeah. And so that's when you get the Mr. Billingsley character. And, and, and yet, as I said earlier, you know, irony is at the core of, of what really makes me laugh. And that's why you got a good laugh with the, you know, good evening, Mr. Riskin, having a little problem with the script, I see. Um, you know, just, just his total non sequitur lines just amused me like all get out so yeah shout out to ed beloin for for making that such a wonderful character one of the early one of the earliest episodes that i listened to as a kid um he comes down when mr benny's having breakfast and he talks about how he um he's like oh i used to live in the uh i i I, my wife used to live in the kitchen in fact i lived in the kitchen um uh why oh it was one of those things i was married to a cockroach (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> her name was her name was Gwendolyn. We used to argue all the all the time over who was boss, but I'm not. But then I put my foot down, and that was the end of it. <laughs> and then he goes like, but "I I stayed single for a long time, but then I got but I got tired of bachelorhood, so I remarried." And then you hear a rat a mouse trap go off, and Jack goes, "What was that?" Rochester goes, "Our trap. We finally caught that mouse." And uh, 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 Boulogne goes, "Well, what do you know? I'm single again." <laughs> oh god mr billingsley my spirit animal anyway (laughs) um but yeah no yeah that that's that's how i aspire to live as goofily as all possible Um, Uh, but anyway they're talking about the diana situation and within this comes the discussion of like you know, Bob, you're not really a ladies' man. You need to go around. You like you. You need to get out there and meet somebody. So it kind of turns basically into a into a rom com that we still have these tropes today about like you know you need to learn how to impress women and you know, all this all this stuff that is thankfully transitioning into a more mature line of thinking. But at the time and up until like even as far back as when I was a teenager, this is kind of like that standard like you know guy learns how to have confidence around women kind of thing mm-hmm. and. Now, what this film does with it is interesting because 
because it's Jack and Eddie or Rochester, you're you're really uh, you're put into this interesting position where once that scene, that opening scene kind of gets out of the way, you know, they they really lay into Rochester as the best friend in every romantic comedy. Who's just like, nah, man, you need to go for it. Like, it's just like mm-hmm. that's what it kind of del- delves into. And it's very interesting how that dynamic kind of plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, but first Jack has to go pick up the crew and he gets lost in the London fog. And there's some beautiful, funny scenes of him walking a certain amount of uh, distance and then coming back to the same person he met asking for directions. Um, and at the train station, we meet uh, Ted and um, Diana, played by Phil and Dorothy. Um, and eventually, everybody makes their way to their quarters. And Diana comes to Jack's, uh, to Bob's uh, room. And Bob has asked um, Rochester to have the chefs bring up a, a big dinner with all the fixins. And uh Dorothy comes in. They have a little banter back and forth. It's clear that they like each other, but Jack's clearly smitten with her, and she's like, oh, but but you would never be that. And, you know, obviously we know they're going to end up together at the end. It's very, very clear. Um, there's no, like, getting around the spo- spoiler alert, guys. They end up together at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, but so, <laughs> yeah, like li- literally right at the last second of the movie. <laughs> um, and um, which is which is very much of the era. The romance is sped up and their interaction. J- Jack and Dorothy play off of each other really nicely. It's not my favorite interaction with Jack and one of his leading ladies, but it is like it's very cute. And I have a crush on Dorothy Lamore, so I'm riding with it. You know, like there's there's something about Dorothy Lamore that brights up any room. And I think she's definitely able to do it even here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but they have the exchange. She actually says, well, I'm off to go have dinner with Ted and the chefs bring in the dinner <laughs> and he's left alone with Rochester and he has Rochester who ordered all this food. And he's like, you did <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> look, <laughs> look, you gave, he, he does this. He does this a lot with Rochester in, in the radio show too, where I'm like, he, like, Jack, you did that. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't you remember? <laughs> Um, and um, but Jack deflects it, and then he basically tells Eddie, "Like, look, you're gonna like just what are you waiting for? Go ahead and eat the food." And he sits down and eats it. And again, there there is kind of like that stereotype of like you know the help getting the food when it's now suddenly not wanted. But in this scene, but yeah, in fact, the it, that was one of the moments where it's like, oh, that changed. Um, you know that yeah. that that's the evolution because. He's he acts like he's going there. The two of them are going to sit down and eat it. And Eddie, you know, sits down at the, you know, other seat at the table mm-hmm. and uh, starts digging into it. And of course, Jack's mind is elsewhere. And so, you know, he goes off on his thought process. But it would if it was truly a high and low relationship between the two of them. That absolutely would never have been done to have the servants sit down at the same table that the master was going to to sit at. It's um, true. You know, notice in, you can notice in this imagery that they are working wor- working a way around an issue that if the censors of the era didn't understand or know about the popularity of the Rochester character, they would have said out. 
yeah. can't do that. Yeah, not even not even the Breen office would have said that. The censors in the South would have torn this film to ribbons. Oh yeah. Um, and so that that comes to an issue across all boards. And yet this character is so popular that they were able to get away with this imagery. And it's kind of amazing because not only does that happen, what ends up happening is Jack and him go into a conversation, a theoretical conversation about him meeting a, a, a high lady of society. And Rochester plays the part of a high lady in society. <laughs> and now I don't like the character, na- the name he gives his own character, which is Marshmallow. That, that is, is- that is hard hard to hear but you watch eddie going off going off of jack jack's routine here eddie is responding beautifully mm-hmm. jack is responding beautifully he's like there is there is an intelligent interaction between these two and what's more it also plays into that um it's a line that i think jack crosses into interestingly on the radio show too where Two men talking into talking to each other as if they're dating each other, kind of thing, which is not like you can't apply a direct label to that. But it is interesting how it's one of those things. Again, it's just like oh, they're playing around with very taboo imagery of this time that you can't get away with at this time. Um, having two men talk to each other like this, let alone a black man and a white man doing this. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. It's it and that and that kind of like that kind of mentality plays into it because in this exchange. He gets a little bit of confidence to be like, you're right. I'm going to go about town. I'm going to be a man about town. And I'm going <laughs> to um, go. see uh, if I can um, uh, pick up a lady. And, I mean, Rochester does suggest he order fish and chips and a couple bottles of gin, which that's a dated reference. However, out of the context of history, just hearing the phrase fish and chips and a couple of bottles of gin sounds like the most raucous night in Hollywood today, even. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Um, and, uh, but no, he goes out to a big restaurant. Binnie Barnes as Lady Arlington is there. She's being, um, uh, stood up by by her husband the next morning after he's gotten the black hole. Oh yes, that's right. He hasn't gone out yet because he wakes up the next morning. Rochester wakes him up and says like, did your routine work? Were you able to, were you able to score last night? And he's like, I sure did. And he, he, uh, sits up in bed and he reveals there was a black guy and, Rochester asks, like, are you sure a woman did that? (laughs) And, like, again, tapping into taboo conversation, but then Jack deflects it with, it was either a lady or a freight or a a truck, and I wasn't trying to pick up a truck. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so they again go into that conversation about about like the 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 ways to pick up a lady again this is like the movie should, probably should be called how to how to score or something like that yeah, if it were going to go into if it were going to go into you know a you know a malice centric sack of garbage kind of like title where Matthew McConaughey leans on somebody in a poster um but yeah, the, this um but this leads us to this scene in the restaurant where lady arlington is left alone stuck uh, uh, being stood up by her husband john and Bob walks in, Jack as Bob, walks in, runs into her. He's clumsy. He's kind of foolish. He's kind of the nervous Jack personality that we see in different situations throughout this era and later on where he's kind of like uh, like he's caught in an awkward situation. Jack gets caught in awkward situations all the time, whether to his um, bemusement or his chagrin, especially if he's going to a train station where Frank Nelson's going to be there. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, he sits down and Lady Arlington um, kind of looks at the situation and goes like, 
I'm going to show my husband what's what. So she goes to sit down with Jack and they get into a dis, uh, into a bit of a flirty discussion. And meanwhile, Dorothy and Phil come into the scene and Dorothy sees it and starts getting jealous. And Phil asks, are you jealous? And she says, no, I just don't want Bob to end up in the hands of a certain type of blonde, which already the cat claws come out from Dorothy here. And um, so we're already getting the sense that Dorothy has feelings for Bob, but we won't know that for a while. Like we won't see them fully bloom for a while. Um, There won't be love and bloom just yet. And And, uh, um, yeah. yeah, I yeah, I went there. You're welcome, America. And And, um, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Jack would then say, now cut that out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) Dennis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Dennis is also my spirit animal. Um, But anyway, yeah, that which makes a perfect sense for my life. Um, But so anyway, he uh, he has dinner with lady. uh, He has lunch with lady Arlington or brunch with lady Arlington. And we get into the offices of Sir John Arlington, where Lady Arlington comes in and confronts her husband, John, about um, the fact that she was stood up. And uh, Sir John Arlington is really focused on striking this deal with Henry Dubois. So he is on the phone. They do this comedy exchange about like, it was a wonderful dinner and, and I, I encouraged him to make mad love to me. And he goes like, yeah, uh-huh. uh-huh. And then what did you, what did you have? Huh? <laughs> like, like a so, nice little phone banter that kind of recalls a little bit of Leo McCary's work in awful truth um, with the stuff over the phone. But then this, this scene goes into like Benny Barnes going like, and then after, after dessert, I shot him. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> and he still doesn't budge and then <laughs> she then proclaims and is like what yeah yeah, yeah yeah the butler coming in and go like oh what uh, uh, excuse me murder and <laughs> um lady arlington's like and i'm gonna go find another boy and i'm gonna shoot him too <laughs> like and it's like that's fine dear like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's, it's a lovely scene and then within this this time frame uh jack is overseeing rehearsals for his show which I don't know what this Broadway show is, Laura, but I want to see it. Like I, I, it's kind of everything. There's a beachside musical number. Mm-hmm. There's there's an act involving acrobats. Um, in and at one point in that, um, with the acrobats, Jack gets confronted by one of them and gets his neck nearly broken. <laughs> by, and by acrobat, a ra- that acrobat bit is something that Jack had been using on stage before this i'm i'm pretty sure i can feel harry khan's fingerprints on it but ah harry khan <laughs> yeah i may be i may be confusing it with the japanese wrestler bit which was right. a little bit different but but jack then did this almost maybe not quite all the way to the end but you know he always had some kind of an acrobat well not always but Frequently on his stage show, he had an acrobatic act like the Rudenko brothers or somebody, um, you know, and would accidentally get caught in it. And you could see it in the television show and so forth. It's like, oh, this bit, my God, he got like 50 years out of this bit practically. So it's one of those things that like all these bits from vaudeville grow and grow and grow. Like they, they never like truly stop for him. He knows what works for him. Jack is not. It's funny because Jack's when when it comes to Jack as a comedian, 
Ernst Lubitsch had the best thing to say about this, and we'll talk more about Lubitsch when we do To Be or Not To Be. Mm-hmm. But Lubitsch told Jack, he's like, look, Jack, I know your secret. And Jack's like, what? And he's like, you're not a comedian. You're an actor playing the part of a comedian. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, know, with, you know, I'm sure Lubitsch is just like, look, I know your fucking secret. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack's like, oh, shit, I've been had. <laughs> just jumps out the window. <laughs> um, but it's true. Like, Jack was much more of a, an actor and, in a sense, very good actor when you consider the part he played all those years and also a master editor when it comes to the writing table. He was, an, he was a genius editor. I've learned a lot about editing from Jack um, in terms of how you construct a joke. Um, or how you construct story period is just learning what he would, how those scripts of Jack's shows work. And so those bits carry on. There's also this beachside routine with um, Sentimental Sandwich, which is the corniest song I've ever heard in my life. I, um, but, but put it in the context of this is 1939. Yep, this yep. is, you know, towards the end of the depression and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could you could easily see people kind of remembering. It's like, oh, remember when we were poor and penniless and had to split a sandwich and blah blah blah. So. Yes. yes, it's it's a very very cute song, and I don't mean corny in a disrespectful manner. I'm just like on the surface, like it's it, when she's saying the 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 lyric that's sentimental sandwich. I'm actually gonna play a little bit of the audio at the end of the episode of sentimental sandwich. I, I gotta I gotta I, I'll figure out the good line. Okay. I suggest escargot bourgogne? No, merci. Then perhaps coquille Saint-Jacques or naturel? No, I don't think so. Well, how about some lobster? Lobster? No. Thank you, I don't see anything there that I really want. I'm hungry for something, but it seems so far away. That sentimental sandwich that we shared one day. You're hungry for something, nothing fancy, nothing new. One sentimental sandwich coming up for two. Gee, we were and though fate has changed our scenery Gee, the allure of that broken down old beanery We're hungry for something Not for lobster, not for wine That sentimental sandwich That was yours and
You know, I'm hungry for something. Like one of those terrific dinners at the Ritz. Eight, two coffees and one sandwich. Yes, sir. Take it easy. We only got two bits. You know, uh, I'm hungry for something. Like a big filet mignon en champignon and a bit of biscopier, too. One ham on white. Ah. Look, cut it in half. It's for two. Broke though we are, there's a charm that sees us through, dear. Broke though we are, I can feast my eyes on you, dear. You know, someday we'll remember. When we're wealthy. Yes, and doing fine. That sentimental sandwich that was yours and mine. It is, it is a it is a cute number, and Rochester gets a little bit of play in here, where you know he <laughs> like one ham on rye, uh, in talking about uh, Phil Harris's elaborate order, which is another constant gag in Jack shows about they make an order for a sandwich and the waiter will yell out a ridiculous code code phrase for the chef, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, which they would carry on not just with Frank Nelson but also. Um, I never remember her name, but she's the girl who would go, "What do you want, Mac?" Oh, Iris Adrian. Iris Adrian. There we go. There we go. Um, and so uh, they do this number, and um, Phil and Jack, um, with uh, Dorothy in the back there, get into a discussion about his luck with the ladies. And he's just like, "Well, it may interest you to know, jerk, that I, <laughs> I have had dinner with a high lady of society." And Phil's like, "That that ain't going. That that's not happening, Jackson." Um, and the uh, it, Jack has planted Rochester. Yes, exactly. He's planted him to be like, make the call. Uh, call me later on as Lady Arlington. And uh, Rochester points out like, man, how am I supposed to be a an actor in your show, which is what I really want to do, but also be your butler doing these ridiculous schemes. And Jack just goes like, well, it's you're, you're going to have if you don't, you're going to have the distinct uh, the distinct. um uh, opportunity of looking for two jobs at the same time, which, you know, like it's, it's, it's weird as the years go on with Jack and Rochester, the threats for firing become less prominent. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but anyway, there's another, we cut away to lady Arlington having tea or of some sort with, um, Madame Dubois. 
And we get our first appearance of Monty Woolley, my beloved Monty Woolley, um, who I love in The Bishop's Wife. And um, I I got to watch him recently in some other films with Film Club. I love Monty Woolley. I, I, I just think he's so affable and lovable. Uh, and in this film, he's playing a Frenchman. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of adorable. Um, but he's not important. Uh, what's important is that Lady Arlington is... Uh, Going over Madame Dubois, like going like, well, you know, you could have somebody around your husband to make him jealous and then get his attention again. Do you know, uh, do you know anybody who could do this? And she starts rolling off a list of possible people. And at one point, like, do you know an actor? And she's like, yes, I know an actor. And then, you know, Jack goes, oh, my secret's been found out again. And then jumps out a window. Um, uh, uh, and uh, but so she calls Bob. Bob answers the phone thinking it's going to be Rochester, and then he's surprised that it's actually Lady Arlington. And uh, he, on the phone, he sets up a time to go to Lady Arlington's manor, and um, he has already previously basically made a bet with Phil and Dorothy about, like, the existence of a Lady Arlington, period. And so he says, like, well, look, I can I can definitely come over for the weekend and I can bring my two friends along because I'm going to make some money. And um, uh, so he gives his entire cast the weekend off um, and Phil and Dottie are going to be asked to come with him to uh, Lady Arlington, the Arlington Manor. Uh, Bob leaves and Ted, played by Phil, is going like, Nah, this this is bullshit. Like, there's no way, there's no way that Bob has been dating a high lady of society, and that's when he gets a phone call from Lady Arlington, and that's when it's Rochester on the phone, um, and his eyes perk up. He hangs up the phone, and he basically tells Dorothy, "We're gonna make a quick fifty bucks each," and they get on the train. They are uh, going along with what they suppose is Bob's ruse. Uh, and on the train with them, sitting with them, is Sir John Arlington, played by Edward Arnold. Uh, and uh, slowly but surely, it's revealed that to Jack who John Arlington is. And now Jack is caught in a comedy of errors of sorts about like, okay, I can't let him know that I'm seeing his wife behind his back. And that I'm just a friend, but also I've got to prove my point to to Diana and Ted. <laughs> the The plot gets thick here. <laughs> and thankfully, the film, as written, does a good job of addressing the tangled webs and getting them untangled for the most part. When we get to the Arlington Manor, we are treated to interactions with Jack, Monty Woolley, and Edward Arnold where they... um you get to see a little bit of the um the the pauses and the silence that Jack can do but he's also kind of laying into the huckster routine a little bit you get a little bit of both here um and then the plot furthers along where Jack not only makes love to Lady Arlington but makes love to Madame Dubois well and he's kind of set up for that he's set up for that and what's more John Arlington sees or well first Henry Dubois sees Bob making out with Lady Arlington. And then, because they're making a deal up in the uh, up in an upper room where the window's looking down and seeing the garden. And Jack makes out with Lady Arlington in the garden. 
Uh, so Henry Dubois sees this as they're making their businessman deal. And then John Arlington looks out the window and sees that Jack is now making love to Madame Dubois. So they're both being cucked. And uh, the basically they both have a secret from each other and they just decide to, you know, keep it more or less. Um, and Jack has now got to come up with a way to diffuse this situation by having a fiance. And so he calls Rochester to be like, I need you to get somebody from the show, a girl from the show over here. And um, we actually get a bit where Jack and Rochester, they have these routines frequently in the early years where Rochester would normally call up Jack on the phone and be like, hello, Mr. Benny, this is Rochester. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this bit, Jack, uh, Rochester is kicking back, smoking a cigar, going like, this is my weekend off. I don't have to worry about Jack shit. And then Jack shit arrives in the form of a phone call because now Rochester has to solve a problem by getting one of the showgirls out but they've given the entire cast the weekend off. So Jack says, we'll get anybody. Just tell them it's an, a, a last minute rehearsal at the Arlington Manor. And when the conversation ends, Jack says, and put down that cigar. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and in, in Rochester's eyes widen to the point of like, Oh my God, he's psychic. Yeah. Oh okay. shit. What have, what I, have got I gotten this? myself into? <laughs> I, I, I signed up for way more than I can chew. This is this is nonsensical. I should go back to vaudeville. Like, what what am I doing here? <laughs> and um, so Rochester not only gets a girl, he gets the entire cast because <laughs> one girl wouldn't go, and then the others wanted to go, and then suddenly it was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, now- so now the entire cast of his Broadway show is now at the Arlington Manor. They start performing... And amongst the things they perform is uh, Fidgety Joe, which we actually get an instance of Phil Harris leading his band here, which I found very, very fascinating. It's it's um, not his band. It's no, it's not his band, but he, it, as a band a leader, band. yeah. Because the thing about Phil Harris's role on the Benny program is that he was he's the band leader on the show in quotes, mm-hmm. but the, but the real musical genius of the Jack Benny show was Malin Merrick. Right. Um, now I'm unclear about this. Does Malin wasn't around at this point, or was he here, here at this point? Actually, he was here at this point because oh, okay. he joined in the late 30s. So, because okay. um, because Phil became much more of a personality on the show. Uh, yeah. Um, he played the role of the drunken band leader. He could lead a band. Actually, Phil was an accomplished drummer. He led his own orchestras. In fact, the the orchestra he's leading, and so this is Harris, is his orchestra. Um, amongst the people in his orchestra was um, the amazing, uh, never heard on the show itself, Frank Remley, um, who uh, speaks to another part of my heart because the stories they tell about Remley, I'm like, gosh, to live such a life. <laughs> <laughs> I love Frankie Remley stories. I love um, Elliot Lewis as Frankie on Phil's show, but I just also love thinking about Remley without hearing him talk. I can hear him laugh because he's, you can hear him laughing. laughing at Jack's jokes, but you just, you never hear him talk. Uh, um, ex- there's one time when he's on, but I can't even remember. I just remember being so shocked. It's like, Oh my God, they actually got him up to the mic. Is it, is it, is it the, is it the one where they're telling um, uh, Frankie put that away too? I can't find the cork. 
Oh, we'll stick a mute in it or something. <laughs> I can't remember. You know, in a guitar mute, that's not going to work too well. Well, no, they would have like just grab it from one of the other yeah, <laughs> musicians. Yeah, trumpeters or something. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, no, I'd have to go back and, and look it up in volume two as to when he actually got got uh, you know got Sagrate. <laughs> you heard it here first. We may we may unveil at some point. Frankie Remley's voice. <laughs> I'm getting um, Harpo Marx's voice. Oh god! Well, I've I've heard Harpo's voice, and it's um, it's it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's a voice. <laughs> it's pretty Not much like all the others, actually. But yeah, it's it's kind of like what Bill Marx sounds like, but a little lower and a little bit more begrudged. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, the um. Uh, they do the number though, but you see Phil Harris swinging, swinging his stick around and, you know, it, it, it gives you a little instance of it. The one thing I will say about Phil in this movie is that this is clearly before he really laid into his own persona because he is, he is Phil, Phil never works for me in film per se that much. Not because he's not a good actor. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's like- just that he seems like he has a hard time expressing his face. Um, you can see the look on his face never really fully shifting. There are moments in Buck Benny where he does it really well. I think here he's still kind of learning. Um, and, and that was another thing that made me think this is this was not written for Jack and Phil in Rochester. Is that um, I, one of the things that I did earlier today was I listened to the show that was done at the Genesee Theater when this movie was premiering, because which, I, which is a which is a show that I will be playing sections of. Um, near the beginning and near the end of the episode. Excellent. Okay. Yes. That I wanted to be able to compare Phil's character in the movie versus Phil's character on the radio show contemporaneously. Because mm-hmm. when Phil first comes onto the show, he is demure as all get out. and the, He's stiff as a board. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, well, yes, Mr. Benny. Um, Oh, just a side comment. But, you know, that's another thing that that had me scratch my head. That that uh, Rochester calls Jack Mister Bob in this instead of Mister Temple. It's like, okay, he would never call him Mister Jack. You know, it's would have been Mister Benny. Yeah, again, Maury, not really. Not yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Maury, 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 Maury was in one room, and then. Beloin and Morrow were uh, locked out in the other room. So, you know. Yeah, or or maybe Jack wasn't even you know cast in this, but at the time that Maury was turning it into a screenplay. Yeah. But you know that, and I was kind of watching Phil's character with this and saying, he's very muted. I mean, he's he's you know still ladies' man and so forth and. And certainly seems to have have something going on with with Diana, maybe. Um, but then the focus is really about her jealousy of Lady Arlington. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I I just I feel like it wasn't written for Phil because once I listened to the radio show with the premiere, then no, Phil's right out there. He's on the beam, and you know, yeah, he's, he's jiving. He's jiving, and he's staying in the groove. As as Mama Harris would tell him, <laughs> yeah, with oh, with Bitey Talcott. <laughs> Every time Bitey Talcott comes on the show, I I I roll my eyes for a second and then I go, no, this will be fun, Zach. Stop, stop, stop caring. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think I think Bitey Talcott was a was a a, a 
you know, kind of fantasy actor, you know, because because you can hear him get into it, and he he isn't just reading his lines; he's really yeah. trying to sell it. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's like Phil's character was was well ahead of what what his character is in this movie, which yeah. just makes me think it wasn't written for him. So but, no, no, he he does get some wisecracks, but I think that the the movement and the swagger isn't there. It's very much the, yeah. the Phil Harris swagger, um, which really comes into its own around this time on the radio show, and really hits its peak just before he leaves to then do the Phil Harris Alice Faye show for Fitch. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, but I will say like, he's not like unlikable in the film by any stretch. It's more just like, you can tell, as you said, you can tell this isn't written for him and he's still learning. So this is like a stepping stone for him as well. Like there's a lot of stepping stones in man about town. <laughs> um, the, the virgin, uh, Phil Harris cocktail as it were. So, yeah, which, which sounds like a ridiculous concept when you say it out loud, but, <laughs> 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 um, but you know, who's not too stiff in the woods is Betty Grable actually belts out the number pretty well. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you could see why she would then become up that, that lovely pinup girl for all the sailors at war and all the ships at sea like you know this is where you know uh, this is betty grable still getting her getting her bootstraps up it's, it's kind of like, like yeah it's kind of like watching rita hayworth and only only angels have wings going like you get a you get a preview of what's to come yeah um uh but they do the musical number and in here we get rochester's dance number now Rochester's dance numbers in any circumstance are amazing because of the fact that Rochester was an amazing dancer in vaudeville. Oh, heck uh, yeah. And when you, I mean, I think the Buck Benny one is still my favorite. This one's really good. Um, even though, uh, we get a bit of it. Oh, oh, sorry. Well, uh, even though we get this beautiful dance number, uh, we are treated to imagery that we have to bring up. Um, yeah, because he's doing the dance as he does the dance in lady or in the Arlington Manor. There are a, there's a there's a Hearst level zoo <laughs> um, oh, strewn yeah. about their estate. Um, you know, like short of hearing here in Xanadu, the wildlife of Noah's Ark. Like, <laughs> like it's it's very much. Um, God, yeah, I'm gonna watch Citizen Kane and Mink again tonight. Um, the uh, the 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 cornucopia of the zoo and whatnot. And around the area where he's dancing is a monkey cage. Mm -hmm. And, um, in here we get the image of Rochester dancing up towards this monkey. The monkey freaks out at him and we see Rochester doing very nifty footwork within the circumstance of this unfortunate imagery Kathy Seeley talks about this in her book, and I wanted to read from her book because I think she was very, um, she was puzzled by it as well. It seems like, mm -hmm. um, uh, it. So in the Los Angeles Times, um, they they referred to this incident, um, as the dance-minded chimp will appear in film. Some of the most unusual scenes in motion pictures happen by accident. Scene. The country estate set in an, of an English gentleman, which boasts a private zoo and aviary, Ernest Eddie Anderson, erstwhile Rochester and valid to Jack Benny and Man About Town at the Paramount Studio, is performing a comedy dance routine. Mark Sandrich, the director, is suddenly affected to an offstage scene which is going on while the camera are recording the dance. 
a, a big chimpanzee in a cage is not only jumping up and down, but he is keeping time to the rhythm of the swing band, which is playing in a dance of his own. The director ordered another take and the simian did it again. Yesterday, Sandrich shot the scene of a dance-minded chimpanzee doing his stuff, and it should be one of the biggest laugh scenes in Man About Town. This is from the Los Angeles Times of its era in 1938-1939. Kathy then, Kathy then says in the book, and I think, and again, Kathy's an amazing writer. You need to read this book, guys. It is difficult to watch this movie scene today and not think that Anderson and the animal are being paired. And that seems degrading, or denigrating, and that it seems denigrating. Perhaps the scene was understood by others at the time differently. Some spectators might have been so enthralled with Anderson's dancing that they hardly um, noticed the background commonalities and others whose prejudiced sensibilities might have been rankled by the visible equality of Benny and Anderson in their co-starring scenes together might have been mollified to see Anderson's stardom undercut by a chimp imitating him. Um, and uh, I, I will say that it is very unfortunate imagery. There's no excusing it. Um, there's no excusing the imagery of the era. And, I, and if you hear it from the Los Angeles Times article, it sounds like this is just Sandrich thought of this in the moment. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what your thoughts were on it, Laura. You know, I was I was watching it and rubbing my chin about it because, you know, obviously, yeah, you know, here in 2020, we we at least some of us aspire to be a little bit more woke and and uh, you know, aware of such things. But you know, I look at it and said, would this work if it were let's say Ray Bolger? doing mm -hmm. the dance yeah. and it's like you know it would it you know that it actually would work mm -hmm. um, and it wouldn't have that that racist overtone to it so yeah i'm i'm glad to hear that that bit from the la times because yeah i kind of walked away from it saying this may be just what i want to believe but i don't think that racist overtone was intentional um and it's just a matter that we look at it today and it's like oh my gosh you know and and yeah, yeah. it's like okay it probably would have been there then as well it, it you know it's almost like the crows and dumbo um you know or maybe that's a bad example that that they were just right now i um i'll tell you that my my impression of it when i watch it today is I mean, I'll, I'll be blunt. It's mortification, but understanding um, the construction of the scene itself, and knowing that animals were overutilized in films for various different purposes, including this kind of connotation, I don't look at it as anything like you. I don't look at it as anything intentionally offensive. But the imagery, as it stands today, does not hold up. It is like it is yeah, like, and I, I and I and I prompt. Yeah, yeah, I. I, I'm glad. I, I mean, I know you'd agree with me. Like Laura and I are very, you know, forward-thinking people. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the best reasons why we connect as friends. And um, I, from my personal standpoint on it, I said when I started this show that I was going to be upfront in unveiling wounds and um, <clears throat> bad areas of Hollywood. And one of the things is, unfortunately, this era is 
backward minded anyway. And we talked about this early on with the interaction with Rochester in a step and fetch it fashion. But I'm going to say with this imagery, it is imagery that doesn't hold up today. Knowing the production info based on that L.A. Times article, I don't, I don't think, think I don't think that that was in their minds. But nevertheless, it's there and we have to kind of deal with it. Yeah. It's very similar to talking about young and innocent and talking about that shot where you see the killer revealed and it's a man in blackface um, uh, playing the drums with the no one can like the drummer man song playing. It's it's a situation where your comfort level is going to determine how you receive it. You should obviously be mortified, but then process it from the era. I think what's more important about that scene is Rochester's toe tapping ability and, and showing off showing off his vaudeville roots in these scenes because in buck benny rides again which again we will talk about but i will give you a little tease on this we get a beautiful dance number with him and Teresa harris that is one of the most uh, i'll be i'll be up front and say it's one of the most progressive things i've ever seen out of old hollywood period oh, yeah. like I, like i have never seen a scene like that and mark sandrich is the same director so i don't think that Sandridge should be thrown under the bus on this. I do, th but again, we're going to hold the film accountable whenever we can, and this is one of those places where we have to address it. Um, but that, with that aside, the dance sequence is amazing, and it's apart from that moment. We see that Eddie Anderson was a man of many talents, a man who really worked worked through the Hollywood system in an interesting way, having the position of this character in a way that many actors of his generation did not um, and being able to be as successful as he was in pushing forward what you can show on screen and to see what he started off with in vaudeville on screen is an amazing thing for anybody watching this movie. Uh -huh. um, I've shown people Buck Benny rides again where they respond going like Rochester is one of the best dancers I've ever seen in my life. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, yep. And I'm like, yep. Yes, he was. I was watching um, that sequence and saying, wow, he is Mike, so much more Michael Jackson, way before Michael Jackson was even a glint in his father's eye. Uh, yeah. And and that and 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 uh, I mean, you know, obviously Rochester's voice being as prominent as it was in different things. I got to say, I like Rochester as a singer a lot. Uh, um, he's got a great voice. He's another voice that I don't think obviously for racial connotations, you cannot do his version of the voice or the the delivery that he does to a to an extent but also the voice the the tech the technical quality of his voice itself is very hard to replicate oh um, yeah um, with without sounding like an imitation and a racist imitation at that um it's what it's one of those things where i'm like if you did a biopic of jack benny and rochester were involved who in the world would you cast in that role and i can't think of an answer um and 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 believe me, Laura knows I've been thinking about this idea for years. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, back to the plot of the movie, though. Um, um, at this at this point, Jack has basically gone up to Diana and gone like, "Look, you've got to kiss me and pretend that you're in love with me." And Diana goes like, "Well, what's in it?" Not Diana. Uh, Susan. Uh, 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 no, not Susan. Yeah, Susan. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, Susan. Um, and she goes, well, what's in it for me? <laughs> and she goes, what do you want? And he goes like a featured dance number in the show. He's like, but you're not a good dancer. <laughs> Which is a hilarious thing to say to Betty Grable. 
Oh yeah, yeah. You don't say that to. I mean, but nobody knew Betty Grable this well yet, so it's it's right. nobody's playing onto that. We see it now, and we go like, "Oh, Jack, right. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. Did you know? Not, you have not a clue. Wabash Avenue. Um, <laughs> like uh. now, now, um, which also has Phil. Um, the uh, but so she gets the she she plays along with the part in exchange for this, which. It feels a little creepy when we know about the things of the last four years within Hollywood about the the favor, the or the way people got favors out of people and how yeah. women, uh, women were. Harvey were, Weinstein. Yeah, a lot, a lot of Harvey Weinstein connotation within that. The, the characters of showbiz comedies of this era, um, Artisan Models has this too, unfortunately, where it's like, yeah, there's a bit of creepiness abound here, but you are able to separate it out a little bit, I feel. Um, mm-hmm. It's still not great. But it, you can separate yourself out from it because Jack is clearly not Harvey Weinstein. Um, uh, I mean that. I mean, like they're the furthest apart possible. <laughs> like if it was possible to separate distance. Um, but anyway, she kisses Jack goodnight. It seems to satiate John Arlington, but John Arlington's still suspicious and. <laughs> kind of basically threatens Jack <laughs> outside of his house. Meanwhile, we get a wonderful scene with Rochester and E.E. E. Clive. Um, Laura, what do you know about E.E. E. Clive? <laughs> I would, you know, I'd like to know more. I was, I was trying to find out more about him, you know, and in, in getting ready for, for this interview. Um, the, what the, do you know? The, well, I know about him primarily through his work with James Whale because he is the the village police constable in The Invisible Man. Um, uh, and uh, he's also the uh, burgomaster in Bride of Frankenstein. Um, but he also played a lot of butler kind of roles. Um, and um, he certainly was he was regular as Tenny the butler in the Bulldog Drummond series that featured John Howard. Um, and um, he actually, this is... Um, one of the last films he makes because he passes away of a heart ailment at the age of 40 or at the age of, um, uh, I'm sorry, the age of 60, uh, in 1940. And he, um, he was a member of the Freemasons in Boston, which is incredibly interesting. Um, but I don't know how much I can dig into that right now. Um, uh, and, but like he, he had this kind of British authority, um, certainly would have been part of, um, that British round table of, uh, emigre actors, um, who had their own little click in Hollywood. Um, the only one who wasn't really a part of that click was Hitchcock. Cause Hitchcock was like, no, nah, I love America. What are you talking about? I fucking love a hamburger. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but so he gets into a discussion with Rochester about the differences between an American Butler and a British Butler. Um, Again, this movie pokes a lot of British humor, but, you know, E.E. E. Clive's like, I've been a, a member of this respected profession for years. And Rochester's like, man, like you've seen nothing of the world. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, actually an interesting moment where Rochester gets at the upper hand on E.E. E. Clive. And I'm like, this is there's 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 a there's an interesting connotation to it. It's still not perfect, but it is interesting. I was like, he's getting the upper hand on not just Jack, but British aristocracy. Mm-hmm. It's pretty remarkable. Like, like uh, again, we're, you know, we're talking, as it were, of, of the servant, uh, the the help. 
Yes, um, yes, exactly. exactly. He's, yeah. he's, he, he's, he's like, he's kind of like one sentence away going like, you don't understand the working class rules society. We need to revolt. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. which would be interesting if Rochester just suddenly switched to that motif. <laughs> like, <laughs> and actually, actually funny that you say that because there is a play that was written by a Mary Baraka. And I'm so glad that I looked up that name recently, or I'd be sitting here going, um, 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 uh, trying to remember the name. And it's called, is it Jello? Jello? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Good for you for knowing it. Yeah. Where where Rochester basically takes over. So yeah, he's just like, fuck these white people. And I, and you know, like, and it's a play when I read the play, like when I first read it, I was like, Oh, this seems mean, but now being educated in matters the way I have the last four years and especially over the course of this year I'm like no that's a perfectly normal response that is a perfect perfectly fine response when you are look, looking at that characterization then yeah. and trying to move things forward like it, it's a it's a very um uh it's an appropriate like I said it's an appropriate response to it and it's an interesting play like it's it's a very like it's a one-act play very much like yeah and um, you can tell that that he must have had some familiarity with the the Benny scripts and characters and so forth because it's not just like somebody who doesn't know about it trying to write that that script he's actually got I'll have to pull it again because it's been a number of years since I read it. But I remember thinking, wow, this is somebody who actually knows the show trying to write their own variation on it. So. Right. Right. And it's, and it's, I don't, I don't think it's disrespectful by any stretch of the no. imagination when you read it. No, it's very, very, um, very appropriate. And I think, and actually, if anything, it's a play that people might want to look up. If you're interested in learning more about Jack, you might want to read it side by side when understanding how people perceived the character. Cause like Kathy's book talks a lot about how the Brack press reacted to Rochester's characterization. And a lot and of, a lot of their um, complaints actually have to do with early, uh, early characterizations of Rochester before the end of world war two, when Jack said, we're getting rid of any, any, any stereotype jokes that yeah. could be attributed to African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, but there obviously was a little controversy when they reused a script in 48 and didn't, look at it and um they they got into a little bit of hot water over that Mm -hmm. um but anyway they have that butler interaction he's shown to his quarters but um uh, jack is milling around the house and meets up with henry dubois and dubois tips him off going like uh no like i saw you like you you need to leave (laughs) like yeah i i saw you fooling around with like and he uses the CADS code and says, get get the hell out of Dodge. Um, yeah. Bob writes a quick note to Lady Arlington saying, like, I had to leave suddenly because. And <laughs> um, tries to get to note to Lady Arlington. He almost gets caught by John Arlington, but hides behind a suit of armor. And uh, we get a nice classic suit of armor gag, um, <laughs> which uh, doesn't necessarily. I always feel like physical humor doesn't really work well for Jack How in terms of like. like yeah. What? Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I have such a problem with the 
scene in Horde Blows at Midnight where he's swimming around in the coffee cup. It's like, okay, I know other people love it, but it's just like, oh, that's so not Jack. So. It's, 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 it's not Jack. The reason I love it has nothing to do with Jack. The reason I love it is, why is this coffee cup a set piece in a movie? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, 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 short of the explanation at the beginning, I'm like, why is this here? Like, why? <laughs> why? He, he, short, he goes through basically the same chocolate tunnel that Augustus Gloop does in Willy Wonka. Yeah. Like, that, like that, that, that's, that's the that's the flow of this scene. Yeah. Um, but yeah, physical humor doesn't work well for him. George uh, George Washington slept here has I think the one of the worst um, portrayals of it when he's carrying up all that. The stuntman's carrying up all the luggage. He falls through the ceiling and then oh, yeah. you see Jack come out. I'm like that doesn't that's not Jack. Like, like Jack again. Jack has not. He, he, despite even what we're talking about here, Jack is never fully represented on film correctly because of the fact that. Nobody seemed to know where to put him because that character was so popular on radio. It's like, how do we translate it? Lubitsch. Lubitsch was the only one who knew how to do it because he's just like, I know your fucking secret. And again, Jack went, oh shit, and went out the window. Um, <laughs> but but I, 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 I'm not dropping this joke. I love it. <laughs> just Jack going like, hey, I've been had. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining a cartoon Jack flying out the window. Um, but but so yeah, they they but but here it's fine. It's very subtle. It's not really anything too major. We then get back to London um, where the show's commencing and we get the Mariel Abbott dancers here um, who I like. However, it's unfortunate that a lot of their appearances in Mark Sandrich films have to do with some very outdated <laughs> dance numbers. Um, yeah. um, the the one here, we'll talk about the one in Buck Benny Rides again in another time, but in here... It's like Arabian, uh, Arabian girls. It's seven veils. Kind dance, of dance, yeah, dance of the seven veils, which is something that you hear referenced in the Road to Morocco song, but you never really see it here. It's pretty much here. Uh, and Dorothy, and Dorothy Lamour comes out in in chains, you know, screaming up, like singing up her song. Um, and uh, at this point, actually, there's a beautiful moment with a rabbit here. Um, where, yes. Where, Jack, I Jack is that. And I, saw, I was like, I forgot about that. Yay! And, and Rochester's like, I'm rubbing my rabbit's foot for good luck. Make sure the show goes off without a hitch. And then he unveils it, and it's a whole rabbit. And he's like, I figured if one foot was good luck, I'd bit the whole thing. And then Jack goes like, Let me have a, a hit of that rabbit's foot. And he Rabbit grabs off. the rabbit's foot and starts tugging it. And it's gentle. It's kind. It's a and it's a cute rabbit. It's a very cute uh, rabbit. It's a little Netherlands dwarf rabbit. It's like, oh. <laughs> Uh, no, this is adorable. And then, and then Jack was just like, "We're gonna begin the rabbit revolution tonight." <laughs> <laughs> and Jack just went around all the studios and freed all the rabbits. It's one of those stories you'll never hear yeah, about Jack Benny. That's why we celebrate with carrots every day. That yeah, yeah, but, yeah exactly. exactly. But Bugs Bunny gave a wonderfully moving eulogy at Jack's funeral about the liberation of the of the rabbit people. <laughs> yeah, and Jack yeah. Like, um, playing his violin and just leading them all to freedom you know oh, yeah. oh yes it, it was the pied piper but for good reasons um <laughs> then he went up and got the 10 rabbit commandments and brought it down and whatnot oh thou thou shalt not wear pelts <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, oh god I, I, now i'm just picturing jack with the 10 commandments and one and there's an 11th one that goes well 
and that's just it. There's no, there's no, there's no commandment. It's just the word well. Uh-huh. I, I was envisioning uh, the, the Bell Brooks gag of these 15, 15. Uh, 10, 10, 10 commandments for all to obey. My, my, my favorite line in that moment is not that, but it's before where um, he's like, I hear you, I hear you. A deaf man could hear you. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but anyway... They rub this rabbit's foot for good luck. We get the dance of the seven veils. Intercut with this, uh, uh, John Arlington, uh, Lady Arlington, and Madame Dubois are are sitting watching the show, mm-hmm. and and intercut. Meanwhile, at John Arlington's office, Arlington and Dubois have struck this deal. They get sloshed and celebrate. And and much like you know business partners do, they're like, look, no more secrets between us, bro. I saw. Look, I'm gonna tell you straight, bro. I saw your wife kissing another man. Really? I saw your wife kissing another man. And, and whoa. whoa, was it Bob Temple? Yeah, it was Bob Temple. And they're like, oh shit. And then <laughs> what ends up happening is that-, is that they decide we're going to go from sloshy drunk to brutal murderers because they not only plan to go storm that theater, but they get, one of them gets a gun and just shoots one of the lamps off the table going like, wow, they are just ready for murder. Like it was like now on the show, we've been talking a lot about com- comedy context and history. Here's where we get into the ridiculous going like these two are about to fucking slaughter Jack. Like, <laughs> like it's, the, the abrasiveness of them shooting that furniture and saying like, fuck it. We are pissed. Meanwhile, meanwhile we've just seen them not give a shit half the movie. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> It's but just that bravado. I shot him. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you know, it, it's. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were a rabbit. <laughs> if I, if I want to, if I want to pull up to Dick Cheney realm, hey, Dick Cheney jokes. Those are fun guys, right? Oh, um, yeah. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Never get old. Um, um, but yeah, they're about ready to commit murder and basically turn it into a Sherlock Holmes mystery if we're not careful. Well, yes, um, but let's also put it in context that that this is kind of like the especially with the french character there you know of, oh, of, of, slapping, of honor. yeah but with the, taking the the white glove and and slapping him and you know pistols at 10 bases you know uh, actually which way, which way? A, a more like mel blank during the seaside routine but <laughs> we yeah <laughs> 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 gotta be a good good pun in there but i can't think of it at the moment yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's a French know. mistake. Yeah, so it's like they're 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 you know both both out to get the cad and you know and defend their family honor and and their wife's honor and so forth. So yeah, yo, yeah, yeah. The, the the chivalrous nature. Yes, and um, but yeah, so they get to the theater and um, this is when Bob Temple gets his big a- big acting moment in the in the uh, in the show because he's playing the head, he's playing a, a, a an Arabian prince with Tire. an entire harem, and <laughs> yeah. A sultan, yes, a sultan, and uh, him and Rochester get to do basically a vaudeville routine from straight, straight out, out of a Vanities or a Follies, and uh, it's 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 weird. <laughs> it's, it's like it doesn't work today, but it is funny within the context of like this is clearly a vaudeville routine. Like oh, like, yeah. <laughs> well, him calling him Ali Rochester, I was like, whoa, okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm like okay, that. this, yeah, yeah. Now we do get another dance moment with Rochester um, wearing the Arabian garb, and it is still a good dance in the spotlights right on him like it is a solid dance too it's a nice shuffle oh yeah but i actually have 
a little bit more of a problem with that dance number than I do with the one with the the monkey. Um, because yes. this this conjures some of the aspects that they let go of in the Rochester character of um, shooting crabs. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and yeah. so that you know that's stereotypical, and you meant it. Um, not you, but yeah. you know, it, <laughs> I didn't make Man About Town, Laura. <laughs> okay, okay, you know, so I'm not Mark Sandrich. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's it, where, whereas I look at the the monkey juxtaposition, it's like, okay, yeah, definitely not cool today, but but yeah, I don't think anybody meant anything out of it, and it's like, no, you're taking a completely stereotypical page there. Yeah, um, no, that's this, and this is before Jack throws down that edict to the four writers and goes like, "All right, guys, enough." Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and I mean, to all indication, when you listen to the you know the recollections of at least Balzer, it's just like, "No, yeah, we we switched the character up, yeah, like you know." Yeah. They, but this, but this is like it, it is a it is a it is an offensive stereotype, and it's one that's present here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly like I mean I. I look at the shuffle and primarily marvel at it, but when I get to that moment, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's it's again like sometimes with these films of the era, you have highs and then you have an extreme like downward slope of like ah shit. Yeah, it's like this like, this facepalm moment for about five minutes, and then I, I, I mean, for me, it goes beyond facepalm. I just sink into my chair, going like, we're fucking terrible. I, um, oh <laughs> man, that's yeah, that's what I do on the Yosemite uh, series line where where. Jack says, Rochester, where are you? And it's like, boss, I'm right next to you. You know, open your eyes or smile so I can see you. It's like, oh, I have, I have, I, I, I know of some jokes in one of my favorite episodes uh, with the Halloween episode where he's talking about, like, I'm going to close my eyes and go as a Smith Brothers cough drop. Like, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's a very hard line to listen to. In an otherwise wonderful episode where Basil Rathbone decides to just be a child at the end of the episode. Yes, yes. <laughs> I love Basil. Uh, I love Basil. Um, shout out to Adam Roach, who made me fall in love with Basil Rathbone all over again with his series on the Sherlock Holmes movies. Um, and uh, but anyway, but anyway we get... hold a candle to Jeremy Brad. Oh, fight, 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 uh-huh. fight. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that fight. You know, I, I, I love all Sherlock Holmeses, including Ian McKellen in Mr. Holmes. That's how far I go. I want to see that. I that's been it's, on my list for a while, but yeah, I have. To oh, it's a it's 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 a beautiful movie. I saw it just after seeing my grandfather for the last time before, before he, he passed away. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit after the recording. I, it was there a, was a that was a hard that was a hard day. But anyway, but anyway we I, get, I love Ian we McKellen and anything. So oh, yeah. I, I, and and Laura, I love you too. <laughs> Thank you for watching all of my work from Gandalf to Magneto, all the, all the way to James Whale. I'm I'm just delighted that you enjoy it. Um, now James uh, Whale, he did that so well. Yeah. Oh, I love Gods and Monsters. It's one of my favorite performances he ever gave. Um, yeah. And um, but we get the vaudeville routine. Mm-hmm. Um, guys come back for their wives. He goes like, "Well, if everybody came asking for their wives, and like then this is and like sh- I mean, like closing my eyes, I'm just like, I give up, Mister Fudd. Why would I give your wife back?" Like, <laughs> 
Oh, you God, know, my favorite. <laughs> lots of sensibilities. There, there's the dance number where it's like, oh, well, you know, those are only the, the freshmen, the varsity team of your wives are out. Oh, my God. That was so, like, I I just, I my jaw dropped while watching that. I'm like, what are we doing here? <laughs> but anyway... Um, Bob and Roch, uh, Bob and Roch are doing their routine. Within this, Bob sees that um, Arlington and Dubois have uh, have are there and they are pissed and they are ready to avenge their lady defiled or however they see it in their chivalrous manner. And of, of Jack gives a look that if he only added the word yipe would have would have been perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, he, um, with, within that moment, he actually, he's trying to, in this, as this is all going on, he's actually trying to assure Diana that there's nothing between him and Lady Arlington. And he writes a note to send to Lady Arlington. That's very vague. The note is like, I must see you in my dressing room, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm like, ah, Jack, write a, write a better note. (laughs) (laughs) This is why he was a good editor. He never said he was a good writer. (laughs) Um, um, So, um, and uh, he like, so they finish up that routine and he's cornered by Arlington. uh, Well, he's, he's, uh, well, he gets caught in the acrobats. He, 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 act. That's right. He gets caught in the acrobats, um, and we actually see Jack uh, walking alongside with them in the middle of the routine. I'm like, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> all that vaudeville training again. It all goes into into this moment here on the stage. Like you get to see a little bit of Jack on stage. Not not what he would become known for with the monologues and stuff, but just you know, the ability that he had, which is the the same ability that George technically had as well on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, If you, I mean, like (laughs) there's a lot of stories that George tells where I'm like, did this one happen? (laughs) (laughs) Probably not for most of them. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, "Mm, what, what did the seal happen? I mean, I've seen the picture of the seal, but Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. was it, was it that long for you? But anyway, he, the, um, he gets, uh, he meets Lady Lady Arlington in the dressing room with Madame Dubois, and um, Dorothy comes up to the door, and he disguises his voice as Diana. Rochester, or Diana, yeah, yeah, um, um, and he disguises his voice as Rochester, and it was weird. It's not, it's not like it's not, yeah, it's, it's not a it's not offensive. It's just weird. <laughs> yeah, um, like, basically what they're doing is Jack strips lip syncing and they're playing Rochester's recording of his lines um, over it. And like an uh, interesting device, but no, my suspension of disbelief is not engaged right now. The, the only thing that tops it for me in the Sandwich Benny trilogy is in Love Thy Neighbor at the very end when we see everybody's version of themselves as a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that that one still gives me nightmares. <laughs> I don't blame you. I have not been fond of that ending <laughs> since I first saw it. Looking at Jack. Messed up. 
Looking at Jack and Fred Allen and baby bonnets shaking rattles is the scariest thing you will ever see in your Busting life. Busting their, their baby bottles over each other's heads. Yeah, it's just like, oh, this is um, this is why Fred Allen's film career never took off. Um, <laughs> well, it's, you it's know, fine. It, it's kind of like the coffee cup. It, it, to use a, a theatrical term, you know, we don't know how to get off. So you're just kind of like out there flailing. Yeah. It's more of a stand-up comedian thing, and, and just trying to find some laugh to get off. And it's like, we couldn't figure out how to get off. So, yeah. you know, you put Jack in a coffee cup and then have him wake up, or or you have them babies, uh, you know, breaking yeah. up. It's like, oh. <laughs> and that's around the era where comedy becomes a, becomes a lot more broad. Like, you actually absolutely see it in the big store with the Marx Brothers, where yeah, they're... they're, they're the final act of that movie is just the most non-Marxian thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, I like parts of that movie a lot. Trying to remember what it is. Oh, it's uh, them on roller skates and them just running around the store uh, trying to get the film from the camera. Uh, it is... Um, it's so stunt-heavy that it's just like, this isn't the Marx Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Max Sennett you yeah, know, back in the day. Yeah, this is a Keystone movie, and we're not a Keystone, but Mayor didn't know how to handle them. But, yeah. but we get that scene, he, and then, you know, uh, Diana's like, I'm not fooled, Bob. Like, they, they, look, John Arlington and Henry Dubois are here, and <laughs> he gets... Yeah, they come busting in. They, they come busting in. They're about ready to shoot. Um, Lady Arlington holds up the ruse for one more round uh, to cause some confusion, and... Jack gives a little bit of a pause uh, that he would be noted for later, um, extending out to the fullest extent. Uh, but here he gets a little pause and goes, what? <laughs> like, um, And then um, just as it looks like Jack is about to be murdered by these two angry international gentlemen, Rochester comes in with a baby going like, oh, I'm sorry, here's here's your kid. Like, and, and hands you know, to Diane, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then they're, you know, coddling the baby, and Lady Arlington's like, look, I was just trying to get attention from you, dear. Like, I, like you never pay attention Poor to Poor child and orphan. Yeah. yeah, it's Bob and Diane's baby, allegedly, and... Yeah. Yeah, she's like, "Look, I'm I'm you're at the office forever and I do I just get the feeling sometimes that that office means more to you than it does to me." That vibe. Um, um and so they leave and uh <laughs> here, here we get Bob, Diane and Rochester. Yeah, and we get the final moment of the film, which is um it's a thing. I'll describe it as best as <laughs> I can. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's um. So Jack and Jack basically says like, "Well, Rochester, you can expect one from us soon, just like this, because Diane and I are gonna get married and have kids." And Rochester's like, "Just like this one," because he's about to return the baby to its parents, and he's like, "Just like this one," and we unveil <laughs> the we, un- <laughs> we unveil the we unveil the baby, and it's a African American baby, and Roch says his catchphrase, my, my. Uh-huh. Um, and, and we end the movie, the end of Paramount Picture. That, that last joke, um, I will say, if if we're talking about Rochester baby jokes, the one that he has at the end of Love Thy Neighbor is much more preferable. Um, but um, I will say that it's interesting that that joke is technically a joke that's sustained itself into the early 2000s with, um, so far as like, like it's especially a joke in the pilot of My Name Is Earl, which is that 
um, forgotten Jason Lee show that happened, which I mean, it's not a bad show. I'm just saying it. We have not talked about it recently. Uh-huh. Uh, um, but they have that joke where Earl's kids are clearly not his kids um, with because his wife was having an affair. Um, so that kind of joke of like, you know, uh, of like race. R- 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 I'm trying to find a way Being to able say to this. infer parentage by, yeah, based yeah, on race. Yeah, that that whole spiel, like that's a joke that like I don't think works today at all unless you're like really clever about it. But here I don't think it's being played for anything more offensive so much as just like co- like comedy of errors. I don't think yeah. it's, I don't think I don't think Mark Sanders is just like, no, this will be a fun racist bit. He's more just like, no, this is funny. Like, yeah, you know, this, ridiculous. this is ridiculous like, or yeah, whatever, 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 you know. Well, or in, and it's it's ironic because you're yeah, not yeah. necessarily expecting it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's it's certainly the last thing you're expecting, but and we, we, I I saw that and I went, huh? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm not offended by this. Is there something wrong with me? You know. Yeah. And yeah. just well, I, I, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's I I just I find it funny because of the irony not because of any underlying racism but that said that's me and i can absolutely understand very much like with you know the rochester and the monkey dance scene you know how somebody could look at that and go oh my god you know and you know be be upset and offended about it um but yeah. Well, I think I again, I think this is, a, is um when it comes to this subject, I do feel like how you talk about it depends on how, how you how you receive information and how you separate it out be like, okay, like this is something I'm watching, it's not something I'm going to live my life by. That's how I've always tended to look at it. Is like this is not I don't live my life thinking I need to compare people to this. Like this is a thing that exists, I'm experiencing it. With films of this era, I think that there's um a bit of a mixed bag on how you receive that information. And I, that's why I never tell people like, look, you should just watch these movies without any context. I'm like, no, you need to watch them with context. Yeah. You, need- you need to, you need to watch a movie with, with historical knowledge in mind, if it's of a certain era, because especially with what we've dealing, we've been dealing with the last four years, it's important to understand that context because if you go into it blind, then you start suddenly blindly getting angry over, over yeah. something yeah over something being removed like i've talked about it a bunch cuz it's still a crawl on my side of people getting angry about gone with the wind being removed from hbo max mm-hmm. when they when they removed it temporarily to add a a roundtable discussion on the context of the film and its popularity at the time, then put it back onto HBO Max along with that extra feature. But people, but people got angry about it, and I'm like, well, first of all, guys, you can buy Blu-rays and DVDs; they exist. But second of all, um, nobody took a Gone with the Wind away from you, so mm-hmm. settle, settle down. Yeah. Um, okay. In fact, they gave you something to help educate you. So shut up. And like, <laughs> and that's how I. Uh, uh, Laura, that's why I'm not popular with a lot of people because I'm either liking things that are so outdated or people don't understand why I'm not liking it enough. <laughs> like, well, yeah, nope, nope. <laughs> I, I, I try to keep, you know, the the uh, age context bifocals on. It's like, okay, yeah. yeah, I may have a visceral reaction as I did to to Rochester and the Monkey, mm-hmm. but <clears throat> but then. 
also see it in the age context and then try and get the sense of the synthesis of the two. So, you know, it's like, okay, they re the reveal is that it's an African-American baby. Okay, there's irony in that joke. There's nothing that's making the baby inferior. Mm -hmm. It's just that the baby is different and that if Jack and Dorothy yeah. had a baby, definitely would not be the same skin tone. Yeah, and again, we might be. Oh, I might be overlooking it, but I thought I would bring it up because it is like an ending that you're not expecting. Like, uh, like to end this, to end the note on this otherwise f open door, open door farce rom, rom com. <laughs> like, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but at any rate, the movie's done. Um, the movie wraps. Wrap, yeah, roll the credits. Um. Yeah, we see the name of the Mariel Abbott dancers again, but don't worry, they'll be back in Buck Benny Rides again. Oh, yes, um, they will. Yes, they will, for a sequence that seems even longer. Um, it and, does, and, um, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it feels longer, and I don't want it to be longer in a movie that's called Buck Benny Rides Again. I yeah. want I want Buck Benny Rides Again. And <laughs> um, But the movie um, had its uh, world premiere at the Genesee Theater in Waukegan, Illinois, in 1939. Man now, About Town did, yeah. Yes, Man About Town did, not Buck Benny Rides Again. That's a, that's a whole other discussion, actually, about the premiere, because that actually is a moment of triumph for Rochester. Yeah. Um, but um, the premiere happened at the Genesee Theater, and actually there's um, other information that suggests that the it was so over-attended that they had to split it between the Academy and the Rialto Theater um, in addition, so they opened it um, simultaneously. Um, in Waukegan, in a couple different theaters. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've been in the Genesee Theater a few times, and it definitely does not hold 50,000 people. No. Um, no. <laughs> no. So, and and the, the overhead photos of, of the crowd there, it's just like, oh my God. Yeah, it was the biggest, biggest thing to hit Waukegan since, I don't know, electricity. Um, yeah. So yeah, it 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 was huge, and I'm not surprised if they needed to screen it on other screens. What is a little surprising is that they had that that they had enough of a market to support that many screens. But yeah, yeah, and I think I'm getting this from the Bory book here, um, like that particular piece. It's the only place that I saw it, but it would make the most sense because of this. The Waukegan's not a big town. It's, yeah, it's it's a it's a very small little hamlet. Like it's not like it's not sprawling there. The the most notable thing about it, apart from also the history it has to do with the Marx Brothers, is um, the fact that Jack comes from there. And so Ray much, Bradbury. So much, well, yes, Ray Bradbury. But but, but which, who cares which, about which, Ray Bradbury? Which, which gentleman with glasses are we talking about today? <laughs> Actually, we're probably talking about Ray Bradbury more than Jack. <laughs> but, and, rightfully and rightfully so. Ray Bradbury was an amazing author. Um but um, anyway, um, the the premiere was large. All the stars were brought out there. They did Jack's final show of the season from this um, from this premiere. So basically, they they did the radio show. And I'm actually, I think, uh, in a moment of spontaneity, if I'm going to arrange a proper, um, I want to try to release the episode that they did from the theater. Um, in this feed because I would want people to hear like what movie tie-in promotion like that sounds like. There's also, if you look on YouTube um, for easier access, there is a radio promo for Man About Town, which I might lay in clips some here. clips here. Mm -hmm. um, where where Don episodes where you know they're talking about oh we're shooting this movie. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and, you know, there's a build up there too. Yeah, and that and actually Kathy talks a lot about that in her book, not just with this film but with other films about like how it's interesting how like they would use the cross promotional tool of radio to promote film. Yep. And yet when they were ever talking about Jack's films apart from Charlie's aunt, mm-hmm. it seemed like every time they were describing the plot of one of Jack's movies, it had nothing to do with the actual plot of the movie that they were going to make. <laughs> <laughs> like they would come up with a generic dramatic scene for Jack to fumble around in. Like, like um, for, um, for man about town. One of the ones that I remember the best is um, they're having the t- discussion about lady Arlington, but Jack is stuck in a barrel and then he has to stick his head out and yell her. Hey, and Mark Sandrich is on and uh, Mark Sandrich is on that episode. Um, they also feature Mark Sandrich in an episode that season when Mary was filming her film this way, please. Yeah. Um, which uh, that's a movie that only Mary Livingston was in. She was never in a film with Jack. Um, right. except for, well, Buck Benny rides again, doesn't count cause she's on the radio. Yeah. Um, it's a different thing. Um, but the episode where Jack is in the barrel, um, it has one of my favorite Mary Livingston, like a sidelines where every, he has to keep going back into the barrel and Mary gives her traditional Mary laugh and she goes, get back in the barrel, Jack. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love it. And then like, he keeps saying, Hey, but in different ways. And then finally, Mark Sandrich gives him the direction of like, uh, just think about what a horse eats. Um, Hey, Hey, okay. And then they do the scene. Um, and then Jack sticks his head out of the barrel and goes, Oats. Right. 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 (laughs) And then it devolves into hiccups (laughs) because everybody's been hiccuping on the set at this time. Um, and then the, um, with that final broadcast from the radio show, there's a couple of notable things here. One, this is a big homecoming for Jack. And Jack, in order to honor Jack, they wanted to do something to honor him, to honor his memory and his legacy. Mm-hmm. So what did they do, Laura? They planted a tree. Yes, they did. They planted an elm tree. They planted an elm tree in an environment that could not sustain an elm tree. Well, and well. also a lot of the elms were um, wiped out by a uh, pandemic of yep. a uh-huh. elm trees. Yeah. Hey, guys, wear a mask. Anyway, because <laughs> I'm assuming by, by the time that this uh, uh, episode comes out, I think we'll still be um, uh, recovering from everything. Uh, okay. If not, then I apologize for that outdated reference. But, hey, we talk about an outdated movie here. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, but anyway, they planted, planted this tree. The reference of the gin and tonic, or the uh, fish and chips and, gin, and a couple bottles of gin. Yeah, yeah. It's an outdated reference, but what's it a reference to? Yeah, well, it's, it'd be a reference to uh, j- drinking gin um, with Rochester, like the, the like, like oh, drinking oh. copious amounts of alcohol. Yeah, okay. um, yeah, that, which they talk about a little bit in Jack's book. Like Jack details it out of like when he goes to the writers, he's like, "No more gin jokes, no more watermelon jokes, no more fried chicken jokes. Right. Get it out of there. We just went through World War II, guys. What the hell?" Um, okay. That's not what he said to the writers. I'm just. <laughs> Yeah, it was more specific than that. So no, yeah, no, the the gin one, yeah, that was that was something I actually kind of took note of after rereading Jack's um, portion of the Sunday Nights at Seven, because I was like, oh, that's interesting, um, and um, and yeah, but the um, they planted this tree, and three days later the tree died. <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't quite that that fast, but yeah, yeah. but they, but it died pretty quick, and yeah. uh, Jack's. Um, 
then rival on radio Fred Allen, which the story of the Fred Allen Jack Benny feud is uh, one that will be further discussed on Love Thy Neighbor. But it should just be noted that at this point, after the main feud or the first round of the feud had been settled, Jack and Fred were still trading jabs over the air, um, which it was a great source for Fred because Fred was Fred's show. I love um, Town Hall Tonight and the Texaco Star Theater episodes that he does around that era because Fred is very much a John Stewart of his era. Like he is very much think, yeah. pro- uh-huh. providing commentary of the day, very sharp wit. A lot of his scripted humor is very, very vaudevillian. When he's breaking out of that and doing the stuff at the top of the show, which would then lead into um, uh, Alan's Alley, he's very much working on his working on his toes like a John Stewart or a Trevor Noah would today. Okay. And um, he has many lines about Benny. There are many lines about it. But the one that sticks in all of our minds when it comes to the Jack Benny tree and it's dying, he said flat out, how can a tree live in Waukegan when the sap lives in Hollywood? There you go. And it's a beautiful line, and it's one that made Jack fall on the floor laughing. Um, probably not as probably not as hard as when he laughed at Jeanette McDonald's um, party, but you know what? I, I, well, yeah, <laughs> but you know that's not that's George Burns telling him <laughs> telling him something yeah, that he knows is gonna. Laugh. <laughs> that's one of the best things about their friendship is that George Burns was just like, I know how to push this particular button, mm-hmm. and I can watch it go to my amusement. <laughs> my quiet amusement you probably know i just say this as the key line on it don't slam the door um (laughs) you know or well or i'll if if you don't pay the check i'll tell mary you had the bacon and eggs (laughs) yeah (laughs) my favorite one is when he took the piece of thread off of jack and goes like i didn't know this was yeah the linties like i didn't know they were in season (laughs) (laughs) he's just like back to him and mary calls him up and it's like you know, what did you do? Jack's Jack. been on the floor for 45 minutes or whatever. I think when he, he stops, stops laughing, I'll divorce him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but the other notable thing that happens on this show is that um, at this time, Jack had a singer on his show named Kenny Baker. Uh, Kenny Baker was um, the prototype for um, the silly, dumb kid Irish tenor um, that would be perfected by Dennis Day. Now, Kenny Baker was under contract to Mervyn Leroy and he was actually, it's funny. I, I if, unless I'm unrecalling it correctly on the previous week's show, it says that he's going to go to New York in the script. And then in this episode, he's not. So he's clearly filming something or within the beginning processes of leaving Jack. Yeah. Well, um, this, this would have been his last show with Jack. Um, if I'm remembering correctly. So, and they just kind of wave it away. Um, not not unlike his hastily uh, written note to uh, Lady Arlington in the movie of like, yeah. sorry, I must be, I've I've just been called back to town. Yeah, must go to Fred's show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and and from what I understand, people had been had been working him over for a while. You know, of like, you're better than the Benny Show. You can make a lot more money. You can be a big opera singer and blah. I can, Mervyn. Gee whiz. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, there you uh, You know, that's not a bad Kenny impersonation. Oh, thank you. From the authority right here, I can be in At the Circus. Um. <laughs> there you go. It's, <laughs> actually, wait a minute. Was it was it At the Circus? I thought it was the big store. No, that's At the Circus. Uh, big store is Tony Martin. Um, at the Circus 
it's funny when you listen to Marx Brothers fans bash Kenny Baker with a two by four. Um, yeah, because I he's, know he's the most hated leading man. So. He's like he's the most reviled. When I watch at the circus, I look at Kenny Baker and go, he's doing his Jack character. What's so wrong about this? But yeah. then when you look at it in the context of the Marx Brothers, it's a bigger issue because it does look a little weird because he has that high-pitched kid-like voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, um, this is so this is in an in-between for, point for Jack because in the following year on the debut program of that season – the thirty nine forty season, he acquires Dennis Day, right. um, not with with a lot of help from Mary, going like, "Listen to this kid, he's terrific." Yeah. Um, yeah. And th- on that very show, we get the completion of the ultimate Jack Benny cast, which consisted of Jack, Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. There you um, go. So you have everybody in there, and that's the key core group of people that would become legends on radio for years. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as Man About Town reviews, um, Kathy's book is actually the um, the bigger authority on this than even, like, you can't find a lot of information like you can on a Wikipedia and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but it seems like that the film was more or less um, uh, received a lot of like intermediary promotion and it received some pretty notable reviews, but it again rise into the fact that nobody knew what to do with Jack Mm -hmm. on film. They just didn't know how do you play, how do you promote this character for all he's worth in the medium of film? Um, I really quickly want to, uh, go through his filmography after man about town a little bit not not too not too big because again we're going to be talking more about jack on this show because it's my show and i'll do whatever i want after After buck benny after man about town he makes buck benny rides again and love thy neighbor thus completing the mark sandrich trilogy Mm -hmm. um and then he does charlie's aunt to be or not to be george washington slept here the meanest man in the world. Uh, and then he also appeared in the Hollywood canteen as himself um, doing his violin. Um, and then his last big starring film was the horn blows at midnight, which uh, in a line that I don't think was ever actually said out loud, which is uh, the horn blows at midnight blue taps for my career. Um, and uh, it's a good line. I just don't know if anybody actually said it. <laughs> um, I think much like the legends of these showbiz folks of this era, it grew over time. And it was a line that worked. And his last... Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's... Well, and it's not necessarily true because it wasn't, you know, it's like, uh, what what was it, Time for Love or something that that Carson used to make fun of? Yeah. Uh, You know, that, that... there, there's still paperwork that shows that they were trying to get him a vehicle for stuff. There was supposed to be a biopic and somehow Jack had talked Humphrey Bogart into playing him in it. And then, you know, it Th- that I have, I have never heard that before, Laura. And oh, it just, just blew, blew my, my mind. mind. <laughs> I know. Isn't that, you know, it's like Humphrey Bogart as Jack Benny. If he did your money or your life, I'm thinking it over. That's when he turns around and shoots the br- the the burglar. That's 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 what happens there. Right. It's it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, was was, was was John Houston gonna direct this biopic? Because that would have been. <laughs> you know, <laughs> about all we can figure out, 
thus far is that there's there's stuff in the trades um, talking about I was going to be called Always Leave Them Laughing, and then he got Bogart to sign up for it, and then it was called Killer Cates, and then supposedly the radio play was that, and then it was recast for Danny Kay, and... Which uh, I would believe and see. Yeah, um, yeah, it's just, well, it recast for Danny Kay not playing Jack. You know, it just, like, was this kind of amorphous mass that just kept rolling along. Um, you know, so, so, but there's definitely stuff. I've been through the Warner Brothers archive to, to be able to show that, you know, there were contracts and Jack encouraged them to buy a script from Dalton Trumbo and then he changed his mind and blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah. You know, it just, they were they were trying to do stuff. It wasn't that Horn Blows Midnight necessarily blew tabs. It's a good line. But, you know, Say Goodnight, Gracie, Goodnight, Gracie is also a good line that was never... Um, don't, don't kill the myth, Laura. It's me, George. I'm speaking from heaven. I know we've met once. Don't don't <laughs> don't break the myth, please. Break <laughs> the legend. Break the legend. But, um, uh, you know, so, so they were trying, but Jack just never... You know, consider the time that that you had television on the horizon. Um, you know, it was hard enough for Jack to do both radio and television, and then television was going to be on the East Coast because they didn't have the transatlantic coax uh, mm-hmm. at that time, and blah de blah de blah. And then he'd get all of his suits on him at once to get on the plane to save money on luggage. And, there you, you know, go. <laughs> I, I love that bit. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting you bring that up because he he, he at cer- at a certain point he also becomes a producer of films. Um, th- yeah, because lucky he pro- the, the lucky, lucky stiff is something that he produced with Dorothy Lamour mm-hmm. in the star- in one of the starring roles. And one of his last theatrical big things um, within the fifties era was the mouse that Jack built because that was a cartoon short that aired in theaters. Um, so I'll call that Jack's last theatrical movie where he starred in something. Um, because then after that, he plays a lot of uncredited stuff. Um, like he's in gypsy. Um, um, and then of course, as we discussed in the, the previous episode, his th- yeah the great lover um and uh uh without reservations but um also his 30 seconds of cinerama goodness and it's a mad 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 world uh where um he's clearly not on set when ethel merman's yelling at him but it's still a wonderful bit um yeah. and I, I actually it's funny that he's not on set with them because I would love to have watched Milton, behind the scenes footage of Milton Berle and Jack Benny cracking up at each other oh, um, no. <laughs> on the set. Um, and then he's um, uh, he the 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 he does these small cameo roles Guide for the married man and yeah. And then his what would have been his final role was the Sunshine Boys, Sunshine. yeah, which would have brought him back to MGM. Um, and he was to play the role of Al Lewis, um, which works. I think it would have worked beautifully, especially knowing different, but it would have been different. Mm. Um, cause I think George brings an edge to that, that part, um, you know, in, in making it kind of a fair fight with Walter Matthau. That's true. You know, whereas Jack, I mean, look at the look at the screen tests, and maybe maybe this is more because 
of Jack's health at the time. Jack, I just, I don't see him being able to quite muster that same edge to be able to, to, to make it a, an even fight with Walter Matthau, you know. I, th- I think he would have drawn back into the personality trait of being a little bit more afraid than being a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there would have been moments where Jack's um, aggressiveness, like when he antagon- when he's getting antagonized by Frank Nelson in, a, um, in the department store or getting annoyed with Dennis and stuff like that, I think that stuff would have come out. But I agree, I think it would have been different. And I think George Burns is better at delivering a bit more of a dry, direct approach. Yeah, um, that's, in that's that what I got by the edge that he brings yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right in that. We'll never know. Because unfortunately, not too long after Jack got the role and did the screen test, his health declined. Um, and uh, slowly but surely over the year, um, Jack uh, was discovered to have pan- pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Um, and on, I believe, if I, I'm, I correct me if I've got the day wrong, but I believe it's on Christmas Eve, he slipped into a coma. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on. He was, he was pretty drugged out for. Yeah like a week or two or, or so I'd have to look it up to see exactly when they made that call. But, um, yeah. And then December 26th at what? 1154 PM. Yeah. yeah. Jack passed away. Um, and, um, Joan, Joan, everybody has their account of that night. Mm-hmm. And I think Jones is the most heartfelt and, um, uh, positive about it, which it was like, it was a celebration of a life. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read Gracie, a love story, um, or no, all my friends, sorry, all my friends by George Burns, mm-hmm. George and his writer describe it as a very, very hard moment for George. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, I'm getting choked up thinking about it now. Um, cause like when I was a kid and I was reading about the death of Jack, like it literally felt like I was losing one of my best friends in that moment. And I yeah. was like, but he's been, he was dead before I was born. How does this work? Um, but I think it's because he meant so much to me hearing those radio shows. So it's almost like Jack never died, which is Jones attitude on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, the, you know, it's amazing that I've, I've interviewed any number of people, um, you know, few come to mind, Ernest Maxson, who produced his BBC special that seems to be lost. Thank you, BBC for erasing everything. God damn it. Um, and, yeah, yeah. Dorothy Oman um, and Zubin Mehta. I was interviewing Zubin Mehta backstage at Davies Symphony Hall and in Michael Tilson Thomas's personal office. And I asked people about you know remembering losing Jack, and they will go to tears, you know, yeah. and and just it's so unbelievably powerful and and such an honor in many ways that the people are able to to just let that guard down and just sit there and cry remembering how painful it was to to lose jack and just to see how much he not only meant to them then but how much of that emo- that raw emotion is still there 40 plus years later Yep. You know, and yeah, there was just so much love for him. It's, it's, it's really amazing. And, yeah. And yeah. the, um, he wouldn't have been, the, those wouldn't have been the only ones that cried because obviously, as we know, at the funeral services that were at the, um, uh, the, te- the, the, which one? The, the hillside. Uh, the hillside. Yeah. Um, 
George went up to give a eulogy. He yeah. broke down. He couldn't finish it. Bob Hope went up and it's one of those times where like I, my, my opinion on Bob Hope fluctuates depending on the day, but, um, uh, for various reasons, but this is one of those times where I stand up and applaud for Bob Hope because the eulogy he gave is one of the greatest things I've ever heard out of Bob Hope's mouth. Hallelujah. Um, yeah. It's, no, he it's, absolutely knocked it out of the park. That day. Yeah. He's both funny, but serious, serious in that moment. It's, it's like, yeah. it's not too dissimilar from the sincerity he would bring after, um, talking about, remember, buy your war bonds. We have to keep the fight going. You know, thanks for the memories. But this, and there is, um, there, the line is, um, God keep him and cherish him. We did it for 80 years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, he even mentions the Sunshine Boys in part of that eulogy. And, um, Milt Josephberg's book, The Jack Benny Show, has it line for line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, a uh, it's a beautiful Irving does too, but yeah. I, yeah, Irving does as well. Um, and um, it's just the one that I've got right in front of me. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Ir- Irving's books a, 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 a stone's throw away from near my television because I was <laughs> reading it last night. Um, but his um, and, and around um, actually one of my favorite things to not 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 favorite things to watch, but one of the curios of the era that fascinates me is the CBS tribute to Jack Benny. Oh where, yeah, where um they uh uh it's uh Charles Corralt who first of all was like was a voice that I had heard narrating the Star Wars audio tape for kids storybook version that's my first exposure to Charles Corralt okay. um that and well no though no, no, not Star Wars Winnie the Pooh cuz he did a he did a uh, audiobook for Winnie the Pooh that wow. that gels a little bit more for me because I'm like that's odd casting to well let's have charles corral do star wars yeah i'm definitely wrong it's winnie the pooh but i'm now thinking of charles corral narrating star wars and i now (laughs) want that and now i want that in everything including the mandalorian um but uh so he but that special begins in the most cinematic way imaginable and then delves into everything it shows footage of the funeral it um uh shows audio it has audio of the rabbi giving the um, the, um, uh, the prayer for the dead, which I, I know there's a Jewish, the Kaddish. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's a very emotional, um, hour of television that you'll ever see if you've grown to love Jack the way Laura and I do. Um, and his legacy would be carried on though, because specials about Jack would pop up whether they were love letters to Jack, um, uh, comedy and bloom is a special that floats around on the internet. Kelsey Grammer even did a salute to Jack Benny, which is still one of the most fascinating it, that and the Jerry Seinfeld thing on Abbott and Costello are two of the most interesting nineties curios I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and um and biography is on him is fabulous so yeah the the which is one that i haven't watched in years and i need to get another copy of mm-hmm. um but um uh and the as far as the legacy of jack on film and what it's released this film along with all of the films of this paramount era except for artists and models are not available on major home video um if anybody's listening to this and anybody cares um after that slight pause you um if you were curious about this film today and other films in Jack's oeuvre um write to universal and turner classic movies and yeah. ask them to put these out because they do listen more often than not 
but they won't listen to just one guy in glasses doing a podcast going like, listen here, Universal. Um, <laughs> you know, they're not going to, they're not going to do that because I get too angry and too passionate and I start beating the table with my hand. Um, but well, you could take off your shoe and be Khrushchev. I, that, that is, oh yes, I could. That, that will go over super well with, uh, the heads of Universal. Maybe Jason, <laughs> Jason Blum might respond to it because he'd be like, I like your gumption. We're going to give you a $5 million movie. I'd be like, say what? <laughs> I beg your pardon? Um, but, uh, the, but these films can be made, like, Warner Archive has done the Lord's work in putting out what they have of Jack's work out to the public. Um, virtually everything they, he did with MGM and Warner's is now available. Thanks to Warner archive. Um, and to be or not to be, which is the film that we will discuss on the next Jack Benny discussion when it happens is on available on the criterion, uh, collection in a beautiful Blu-ray, um, where Laura's name is mentioned in the leaflet notes. Um, and the, uh, extras on it are wonderful. They're a little bit more trended towards Lubitsch. Um, but on the criterion, uh, website there is an article about how to film Jack Benny which is still one of the greatest articles I've ever read in my life um, it's a wonderful article one of the uh, the guy who wrote it um, posts on the um, forum every so often and I and I'm like that that's awesome I've, I've interacted with this guy um, <laughs> um, but um, and as far as the remainder of Jack's cinematic career I think it really um, it would behoove people to give him another look because what I get out of Man About Town ultimately is if we're going to compare it to something today, which has been the point of this show, is that a lot of people today, when we see a big celebrity in a different medium, film will try to snatch it up and will try to find vehicles and properties that work for them. This is this is this is still going to this day. An illusion that I make to and a more successful illusion is actually Kevin Hart. Uh, Kevin Hart, who started off in stand-up, has gone on to a very successful film career because the film producers have known where to put Kevin uh, in those movies, um, whether they be Ride Along or um, Central Intelligence. Um, and what, whether you like Kevin Hart's work or not, it, the fact remains is that he's been able to make that transition. But other comedians like Dave Chappelle were never able to really make that transition to film for whatever reason or another. Um, and uh, the... Uh, the the interesting thing about it is, is that we still live in an industry that always tries any idea it can stick against the wall to make somebody fit into uh, a film world because it's another way to extend popularity and also benefit them. Uh, we live in a franchise world where we can throw any franchise against the wall and get it made. When it comes to Jack and his legacy in terms of it, I would encourage people to examine it on the grounds of watching a character evolve, but also to understand that this is a man who, when it's all said and done, from all account reading, he really, really felt comfortable on radio and then eventually television. Um, yeah, let me add a, a thought to that because, you know, I'm thinking of, of stuff like him and the man who came to dinner, um, you know, is, is the main antagonist as it were and it doesn't work um you know or i know that i think this works nobody agrees with me but fine um jack did some suspense episodes um and there's one where he plays a space alien and for whatever reason i like that episode i like i said i don't think i've found a person to agree with me but i like it um there's just something kind of simple and innocent about it. And I, I have never heard that suspense one. I've heard murder in G flat. Um, so that, um, uh, and, 
and that's a little bit more like, you know, the the character. You know, I say Derek Jacobi always plays himself in anything. It's like, you know, uh, uh, Claudius as Derek Jacobi. You know, uh, because he's just kind of got this this image that that always creeps in. And and Jack, I think, is kind of the same way. Um, and Lubitsch is the only one who was, you know, able to able to split that line, as it were. Um, so there are things in radio where you hear Jack, and he's trying to play another character, and for the most part, it doesn't work. No, you have to let Jack be Jack, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know. So it's like whether it's on film, whether it's on television, whether it's you know on on radio or on stage. As long as you're letting Jack be Jack, he's in his wheelhouse. If you want to take him out and you want to make him, you know, Monty Bully, whatever, you know, it's like that's not going to work. It's a square peg in a round hole. You can't make him an angel that is sent down to Earth to destroy the world with the the notes of the apocalypse. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, I love Horn Blows at Midnight. I, I cherish it to my heart. It's not a great movie. Um, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, but I cherish it the same way that uh, fellow podcaster Cheryl Jones does, where we watch it and it's a New Year's Eve kind of a thing. Yeah. And you know, just to revel in it, it's like a it's a warm blanket with Jack. And I agree, you had to let Jack be Jack. It's one of the reasons why I consider Buck Benny Rides again to be one of my favorite Jack movies because he is Jack. Um, love thy neighbor uh, has that to an extent if I'm going outside of the realm um, to be or not to be because that's not only one of my favorite performances of his it's one of my favorite movies of all time um, and then Charlie's aunt I would put up there as a film where he really gets to have some fun and stretch his legs um, and I George was watched by the uh, disappearing English accent that disappears after about five lines with him. I I I, I feel you on that because there's some disappearing, disappearing English, English accents we didn't talk about. Here. Yeah, <laughs> it, actually, it's funny. There's disappearing English accents in Man About Town that we didn't talk about, but like <laughs> Edward <laughs> Arnold and Benny Barnes are not doing English. Ac- they just threw that out the window they right quick. Right on it eventually. Yeah. yeah, Monty Woolley's just like, no, I'd be French forever. Um. And uh, but, you know, and I I like George Washington slept here, not necessarily for Jack, but for Percy Kilbride, Um, because Percy is the star of that movie. Everybody else pales in comparison to Percy Kilbride. There's a reason why he gets Ma and Pa Kettle. It's because of that. Um, And uh, and also, I love Percy on the wartime year episodes of the show um, where he's going to stick him up, you saboteur. I don't I don't make the rules, you know, Um, and um, but I will say that for Jack's film career, it saddens me in thinking about the Sunshine Boys, because as much as I love George in that and I will never not love George in that Mm -hmm. to watch Jack play a vaudevillian and play with that dynamic with a Willie Clark. And to have that chance to do it is something that would have been amazing to see whether it was good or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that we don't get it is still a shame, but I will say there is a through line through Jack's films that I noticed all throughout the years without ever, um, uh, really intending to think about it, but it actually comes from, um, uh, the, I can't stand Jack Benny contest. Now, Laura, can you quickly explain to the folks what the, I can't stand Jack Benny contest is? Oh, sure. It, it happened in late 45. 
um, they were kind of in a rating slump and they were trying to come up with some kind of creative idea to be able to get some buzz around the show. And they were toying with the idea that there were so many like toothpaste or whatever of I love Ipana toothpaste because <laughs> in, you know, 25 words or less. And so I think it was... I think it may have been George Balzer who came up with the how about I can't stand Jack Benny because there was a silence that just went over the room because they yeah. weren't sure how Jack was going to receive it. Yeah. And Jack is like, I love that idea and it's not going to be done in 25 words. We're going to give them 50 words or less. Yeah. And, you know, so they created this contest and massive amounts of mail. And no, I have no idea where it went. I, I did. I was really pleased to find the newsreel footage with some of it um, hiding in the UCLA archive. But That's a beautiful newsreel, too, to watch that when you see it. It's, yeah, it's you wonderful. should have been in the room when I was first watching the transfer. I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. But and, uh, anyhow, so, so yeah, big, big, um, it, uh, sorry, um, a big contest. And they had war bonds and so forth as as the awards on it. And Ronald Coleman eventually ran the um, uh, read the the winning entry, which uh, has become immortal and memorized by Jack Benny fans near and far. And and it's going to be repeated yet again, Laura. Um, okay. <laughs> um, because um, and actually, I'm going to I'm going to speak the words, but I'm going to intercut Ronald Coleman saying them because I think it's only fair that Ronnie have some words in this episode. Wow. Um, uh, other than I'm in the library, Benita. Um, <laughs> I, side quick, one of my favorite things Dennis ever does is go, "I'm in the library, Benita," to his mother. Um, uh, but um, the winning letter written by Carol P. Craig Senior Senior of Pacific Palisades. Um, which won this $2,500 victory bond. Um, it, to me, it sums up Jack's career. It sums up Jack's um, character that he portrayed. Um, and it also kind of sums up what you see as a through line in the majority of Jack's film career, because no matter what they put him in, no matter what they did with him, no matter how many times they tried to figure out a formula for him, he always tended to show the goofs and the errors of humankind and mankind, and we see a lot of anxiety in Man About Town. We see a lot of buffoonery in Man About Town in terms of, you know, human behavior and politeness and just, you know, fumbling all over the place, whether Jack's being, you know, too ambitious with a lady or, you know, getting in over his head. And I think that the thing that you can find in Jack's films across the board is that there always is a bit of a commentary on um, the faults and frailties of mankind as he uh, eloquated oh, in man. yeah in the um, great comedians yeah. uh, program for PBS yeah. which is a wonderful documentary that's also on YouTube but the the winning letter Cra Carol Craig wrote um, to me sums up film Jack's film career uh, in the best possible way he fills the air with boasts and brags and obsolete obnoxious gags. His cowardice alone indeed is matched by his obnoxious greed and all the things that he portrays show up my own obnoxious ways. Oh, you got the abbreviated version. Two oh. lines missing. Um, yeah, it's matched by his obnoxious greed. The way he plays his violin is yeah. his most obnoxious sin. That's why I'm going to intercut Ronnie speaking oh, it because he oh, says, "Oh, that. oh, I'm so sorry." Okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. No, don't worry. What's that? Photo 
folded sheet of paper that just fell on the floor. Well, oh, Benita, look, it's, it's one of his contest letters. Oh, you mean the I Can't Stand Jack Benny contest? Yes, and there's a little notation on it that says, this letter was written by Carol P. Craig Sr. and won first prize. First prize? Oh, Ronnie, I wondered what the winning letter was right. Read it, please. All right. It says, I can't stand Jack Benny because he fills the air with boasts and brags and obsolete, obnoxious gags. The way he plays his violin is music's most obnoxious sin. His cowardice alone, indeed, is matched by his obnoxious greed. And all the things that he portrays Show up my own obnoxious ways. Now, you know, Benita, that's very clever. Yes, it has such a good thought behind it. Yes. And all the things that he portrays show up my own obnoxious ways. You know, Benita, maybe the fellow that wrote this letter is right. The things that we find fault with in others are the same things that we tolerate in ourselves. That's so true, Ronnie. It certainly is. But I think that that, um, that's fine. I'm going to keep it in because it, this is the error of my own ways for not getting the full version. Um, <laughs> but but I, I, that's the I, worst I, I had memorized until I realized that <laughs> I didn't have the full version. So. It's, it's okay, though, because one of the reasons that I love Jack, and I've talked about him for years on the Real Nerds podcast, and even into Shamley in certain extents, and now this show, is because when I look at Jack's film career and when I look at Jack as a person, one of the reasons that I admire Jack and... Uh, devote a lot of my time to thinking about him and discussing him is because I relate to Jack, the character, in the terms of looking at it and being able to identify where I fall short. Um, uh, this is something that I held dear to as a kid in terms of trying to identify like my place in the world. Jack was a very big guiding source in helping me realize that there's nothing wrong with being imperfect. Mm -hmm. And no matter how many times Mr. Benny would fumble around or uh, go down to his vault because he was a penny pinching miser or uh, thought too much of himself in the, in the Lothario sense, whatever it is, Jack reminded me that it's okay to be imperfect. And he did that with 80 years of beautiful, beautiful existence and comedy that even if a film like man about town is imperfect, it's still another chance for me to watch Jack. Mm -hmm. And that, is the best way that I can cap off this episode other than saying, Laura, thank you for sitting down for three hours to talk about an 82 minute movie. <laughs> um, I will definitely have to cut around or I may just go for broke and say, this is the first two parter episode of the, of the yesteryear Ballyhoo review that works for me. <laughs> really quickly. Is there anything that you would like to plug? I believe this episode will be dropping around the beginning of February. So I know there's something to promote. Yeah, uh, we are having a virtual Jack Benny convention on the weekend of February 13th and 14th. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Jimmy Stewart earlier. We're going to have Jimmy Stewart's daughter there. And mm -hmm. uh, just, oh my gosh, I, I, I've been so pleased with how many people have come out for this that uh, a lot of the Beverly Hills Beavers and Phil Harris's daughters and De at least one of Dennis's kids and you know uh sammy weiss the drummer's daughter and it's uh, oh we're going to have Stuart kanan 
Um, yes. I, yes. Yeah. Oh God. Uh, yeah. I and and uh, I have a feeling that I can probably coax him into playing the B for us, but no guarantees on that. That's really up to him. Um, and uh, just just a, a quick random story that the first time I had a, a party here. And I had invited Stuart and Virginia. And, you know, so we, we had this lovely group of folks. And then suddenly everybody goes downstairs. And that's that's where, well, the collection's everywhere now. But, you know, at that time, the the main part of the collection of records and radios, Victrolas and blah, 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 and ephemera was downstairs. And I have instruments hanging from the ceiling in different spots, you know, just giving visual interest and one of them happens to be a violin and I had suspended the bow at such an angle that it looked like the bow was just about ready to to uh, you know hit the strings of the violin and blah 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 and all so I'm I was like washing something in the sink and all of a sudden one of my guests comes up to me and says Laura yeah does that violin play the one in the basement yeah I, well, I haven't played it in years, but yeah, I'm sure it does. She said, if you take it down, Stuart will play the B for us. <laughs> it's like, well, what are we waiting for? You know, and I just, I, I have them suspended with monofilament. And, you know, I was just like, Pew! you know, okay, that's down. Um, just, just busticated the monofilament and handed this, this violin that apparently at one time belonged to my father. I don't know how he got it. Um, handed it over to Stuart and I said the the strings are tuned down so he gets the strings and I go looking for the rosin and blah 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 and uh yeah I just I didn't have the the presence of mind to video it I was taking pictures at the time so but that's but but that's okay because you were living a moment which is interesting because one of the things that I um, have admired about Jack in general was not just his as a comedian, but also his tireless dedication to the violin. Uh, um, yeah. I, unlike you, I am not a classical music aficionado. I know nothing about um, uh, anything from Mendelssohn to to save my life. But um, one of the things that if I had the ability to time travel, but you told me you could not bring a camera to film it, would be to just say, like, fine, take me to one of Jack's concerts. Yeah. Um, not even the Carnegie Hall one. I'd want to go to just any one of them to watch what how it unfolded. Um, I've been fortunate uh, to hear stories um, in my own adventures about what it's like to be at one of those shows, and it is a um, uh, it's an experience that I live vicariously through other people's stories. Yeah. You, you got, got to have one of those with Kanan, who you know th there should be a whole side show discussing that feud. I know that. Um, uh, James Scully, who does the Breaking Walls podcast, has talked about it at length and done a very good job with it. Um, but having a full-on panel discussion about that feud is fascinating. And you got to hear Stuart perform. And Stuart has a life of his own that's very interesting and very... Oh, gosh, yes. uh -huh. his, his war experience. Um, yeah. And his, um, there's a short documentary about him that I haven't seen but I've heard about. Um and so you, but you got to experience that. And that's one of those things, like if he's going to come to the convention, then by all means, yes, that is a moment that if you can get him to um, uh, play the violin for it, to try to capture it, yes, we could. But even if we didn't, 
the um the ability to see it um is something that can live in our memories forever yeah um and i guess a a, a little spoiler for people i i've <laughs> I threw my name into a pile <laughs> of things to do at this convention. And um, un- I mean, unless the unless fate has another idea in store, like th- lightning striking me down, it looks like I might be leading a little discussion on Jack's film career at this convention, um, which I am. I cannot tell you how much joy that is brought to my mind i texted my co-host immediately and he says like this is something you should have done years ago and i'm like no, I, no. <laughs> yeah but i wasn't doing extension years no he thinks i should be at a, at a at a school right now teaching jack benny 101 just going like it just in a professor cap like professor wagstaff just going like yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm a, whatever it is i'm against it and <laughs> no. ask kathy she's managed to make a career out of it and i salute her for that you know well and and i'll and i'll talk to you a little bit about the further ambitions after we're done recording but needless to say my uh my my love of jack will never go away and i'll be more than happy to lend my assistance to this wonderful gathering um and um and also i will do some promotion for laura um here in terms of uh the things she's helped work on that you can access very much directly um the shout factory company put out a series of uh, a, a collection of episodes um with jack of jack's program called jack benny the lost episodes um it's a three disc set that includes episodes of the television show that were up, in, up until recently not available to the public um and you get some restored episodes of the show including his episode with dick van dyke which Dick Van Dyke reportedly was amazed to hear still existed. <laughs> um, I read the quote. I read, I read the quote where he says, "Like I couldn't believe that this still existed. This is wonderful. I can't do Dick Van Dyke, guys, and I'm not going to try." Um, uh, but he, um, but yeah, that and that's an amazing episode of the show because he works Dick Van Dyke to death, um, yeah. <laughs> and it's a beautiful moment. And there's also um, extra bonus features on the um, uh, show that. Uh, include a roundtable discussion with um, Dorothy Omen, I believe, or no, is it, or is it Beverly Washburn? I mean, no, it's no, uh, it's, no, it's Dorothy Omen. Is, is Dorothy Dottie Dottie Omen? Uh, Norman Abbott. Norman, Norman Abbott and uh, Harry Shearer, uh, and uh, you also get some clips of the Jack Benny television specials, which are also now available on a Time Life collection as well. Um, which I still have not picked up for whatever reason. Um, and um, but yeah, so if you if you want to support the efforts that Laura has done in preserving Jack's legacy, that's one of them. Um, you can also buy Deadpool two on Blu-ray and 4K because it's um it's technically a 2018 movie that stars Jack Benny, um, which I mean I I'm still amazed that that made it in there. I don't know. I want to know who in the writers' room said put that gag in. <laughs> well, I, I was, you know, nobody was more surprised than me when they approached me for the rights on it, you know, and you know my jaws hanging open. So we, you know, we inked it, and uh, yeah, it was it was great, and and so I had to keep the secret for for months, you know, while the the movie was still in production, you know, that they were going to do this gag, <laughs> and I'm just I was waiting for the movie to come out, and I didn't pay attention to the release date or anything, but I knew it had come out because all of a sudden people started popping on on the Facebook group of like, 
Oh my god, I just went to see Deadpool 2 and there was a Jack Penny reference in it. It's like, ah, oh, the movie's out. Thank you. If 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 you listen to one of my favorite shows that I've done of Real Nerds podcast when we reviewed Deadpool two is where we also interviewed um or Olivia Carmel for the first time, um I uh I they asked me the question that we ask about should you go see this movie and my answer was yes it has Jack Benny in it therefore it's the best movie of the year and now let's watch the trailer for Deadpool two <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I got the eye roll from everybody in the room except for our guests that night <laughs> so. Um, but anyway thank you again laura for uh coming aboard this um this is going to wrap it up for this episode of the yesteryear ballyhoo review you can find more episodes of the yesteryear ballyhoo review at ballyhoo-reviewpodcast.com um, and you will hear more about our social media in the tag um but uh until next time we're running a little late so good night folks <laughs> This is the National Broadcasting Company. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Fred Allen, who follows immediately after station identification. Thank you.